VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Tuesday, December the 19th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's the producer of the program. If you're in the St. John's Metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air, 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free, long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 86. 26, so some pretty nasty weather on the province's west and southwest coast. The winds in the wreck house, 140 kilometers an hour. Huge amounts of rain in the forecast, so possibilities for flash flooding is coming down about 10 millimeters per hour. So hopefully the roads don't get washed out. We don't have any real infrastructure-related problems and or individual problems in your own residence and your property. But nasty weather, to say the very least, is going to continue right through Thursday. Oh, boy. So with that comes the power outages, a bunch of school closures. So anyway, looks like a green crisp is coming for most of the province. Oh, and in Labrador, unseasonably warm, some 20 degrees above normal in parts of the big land. So, oh, boy. All right, for hockey fans, just one week away until the uh, World Junior Championships takes place in Gothenburg, Sweden. Canada has, of course, released their 22-person roster. 12 forwards, 7 defensemen, 3 goaltenders. They opened up to the pre-tournament games by playing against the All-Stars from the U-Sports, from Canadian universities, playing against their All-Star team. The Canadian Juniors won their first game 4-2, but got popped in the second game 6-1. They've got a couple more pre-tournament games to go. They've got Switzerland on Friday, the, the 22nd. Then they wrap it up with the uh, game against the United States on the 23rd. Then the action begins on Boxing Day, December 26th. Canada taking on Finland in Sweden. And as usual, there'll be a bunch of age-eligible players that are currently playing in the National Hockey League, and they bring with it some big star power, including Conor Bedard, Adam Fantilli, Shane Wright, Kevin Korczynski, Matthew Poitras, and Zach Benson, all staying to play with their team in the bigs. Speaking of in the bigs, you know, you think about the way that the NHLers travel these days, right? Private charters, nothing but the very best, five-star hotels. Let's go back to 1904. <laughs> Dawson City hockey team, they began a nine-day walk to get to Seattle to catch a train to, uh, pardon me, to get a boat to Seattle to catch a train to Ottawa. It took them 19 days, or pardon me, 23 days to get from Dawson City, the Klondikers, to take on the Ottawa Silver 7, and Ottawa won that particular Stanley Cup. And in 1917, the first game ever played on artificial ice was played in Toronto. And now, interestingly, we look at the number of players that have scored 1,000 points in the regular season. Since they started the NHL, 106 regular seasons uh, regular seasons of play. There's been 98 different hockey players to score 1,000 regular season points. The most recent player to reach 1,000? John Tavares, just this month, this year. So, beginning with Gordie Howe's achievement, the first player to score 1,000 points, that was in 1960-61, and ignore the fact there was a lockout in 2004-2005, there's been 16 seasons which no player has scored their 1,000th career point, but 98 have done exactly that over the course of time. And Gretzky, oh, that's what I wanted to mention. uh, Gretzky became the 18th and the youngest player to ever achieve 1,000 points in the regular season. He was 23. Amazing stuff. Okay, let's keep going. More important issues. So we have long thought about the short-term relief but the potential for long-term pain regarding the province's will and want, obviously, to engage in the private-public partnerships. When you look back at the two long-term care facilities, 60-bed facilities in Gander, Grand Falls, Windsor, There were hundreds of deficiencies found. Consequently, big delays in opening. And consequently, those who would have been residents of those long-term care homes were occupying beds in hospitals for the most part. 
And now we see what they're discovering based on access to information about the 2,700 deficiencies at the Western Memorial Regional Hospital. Everything from ceiling tiles damaged, damaged floors, water leaks, and what they're calling rough finishes that require further inspection. I think it does speak to the public-private partnership. I know someone who's been working on site, and they say there's a lot of very green people working on the project and lots of unnecessary fly-by-night decisions to move an electric plug from here to there, no move it back, no move it back there. No mo- so 2,700 deficiencies. It wasn't that long ago there was a photo-op celebration about the first phase of completion and then to move in some equipment and staff, but lo and behold, we are probably not going to be anywhere close to on time, and I don't even know what it means for on budget, but 2,700 deficiencies at Western Memorial Regional Hospital, that's going to slow things down. Of course it is. Keep with healthcare for a second. So I hope you are not one of the people who are on the wait list for a cardiac surgery. I have a friend who's on that wait list and has been for quite some time. So when we heard from the chief, uh, Dr. Sean Connors, not that long ago, there was 150 people on the wait list, and the hope was to get it down to some 50 or 60. Unfortunately, we've experienced some times in the past where we've had only three cardiac surgeons. The hope was to have four in place at all times. Then it was down to two. They say that we're going to have as many as five in place by February of 2024. But that wait list hope to go down to 50 or 60 has gone the other way. There's 195 people on the cardiac surgery wait list. You know, there's lots of reasons why that may be, including the fact that we've had so few cardiac surgeons in place. And thankfully, it looks like that's going to change. And then when there was a partnership struck between the province and the Ottawa Health Institute, Heart Health Institute, so a lot of people have made their way to Ontario Ontario to get that procedure. So as many as 50 patients from this province, when we first entered this agreement or memorandum of understanding in May 2022, it expired this May, but has been renewed for another couple of years. So that's been helpful. But boy, oh boy, to know between you and your anxiety, wondering what the next time you close your eyes, if it's the last time you open your eyes. So that number is obviously genuinely concerning. And beyond the patient themselves, you know, knowing that their family and friends know that you've got a serious heart issue, many of these people might already be in hospital or maybe have been told, go home, we'll call you and let you know when your procedure's coming up. And I heard someone make the analogy, and I think it was Dr. Connors himself, saying, you know, it's like knowing you have a flight, but you don't know what day and you don't know what time. And so you're sitting around, twiddling your thumbs, stressed out about meeting deadlines, stressed out about your overall health and your long-term health, but that wait list growing and in the wrong direction is obviously extremely concerning. But hopefully with those five surgeons, that will be in place. We can indeed, indeed see some of that waitlist be reduced to a more manageable level. And this one here. So here comes Christmas. I enjoy the Christmas holidays, I have to say. Now, things have changed dramatically about just how active many people will be on the social scene and the Christmas parties. You know, many people have just disregarded some of the respiratory issues that are certainly very prevalent in the province and around the country. And the Christmas party season will proceed. There's an interesting story I read this morning regarding your overall health and loneliness. So during the pandemic, there was unfortunately so many people based on the restrictions that were in place that absolutely, maybe for the first time in their life, found themselves being lonely and then maybe have not recovered to the point where they've bounced back to their old social self. But some of the research that's being done in some 140 countries, surveys that have been asked of about 1 billion people reporting that they feel lonely. The question wasn't even asked in China, so the number is probably much higher than that. They talk about the impact on your overall health and, of course, on your mental health. There's a direct... uh, 
there's a direct association between loneliness, increased risk of obesity, dementia, cardiovascular disease, stroke, and maybe some uh, substance abuse. So it's easy enough for me to say, if you're lonely, find some social connection. There are some online tools via Zoom or what have you that can ease that particular uh, feeling of loneliness, but to know that just that concept does indeed have physical health implications, it's really quite something. And then you think about the folks who we generally think may indeed be the ones who are lonely, and you know, seniors. Not so. In Stats Canada survey from 2021, found that one in 10 Canadians over the age of 15 identified as always or often feeling lonely. So it's a real, it's a bit of a heartbreaker to know that so many people feel like that because it can be overwhelming. And once again, it's not for me to say that it's just so simple to go and get some friends or to go to some social gatherings or to join a club or to get a hobby that includes just spending time with others or join a book club, because that's easy to say. And for many who feel that way, it's maybe hard to overcome. And I just thought it was an interesting story. There was a relationship between loneliness and your overall health. Oh, boy. Okay, let's go talk about something that is a confusing, convoluted issue, but for the first time since 2008, Newfoundland and Labrador will be the recipient of equalization payments coming from the federal government. Okay, so you're harking back to Brian Peckford in 1982. One day the sun will shine and the have-not will be no more. And then you fast forward to Danny Williams in 2008, talking about it being a real momentous occasion, a joyous occasion that we are now net contributors to the country and no longer on equalization. Okay. So there's a bunch of provinces that are going to receive equalization this year, and we are now amongst them, albeit we get the lowest payment of all provinces who are on the formula. So I had a list in front of me of the provinces that will be getting it, but it's Manitoba, Quebec, Ontario, New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, PEI, and I think us, and I think that's the extent of the list. Okay. The amount of money coming our way, $218 million in the 2024-2025 fiscal year. You know, I understood why it was a feel-good to no longer be a have-not, to move to the have status, which people talk about when we talk about equalization. Of course, it's enshrined in the 1982 Constitution. But I don't, think it's, I don't think we should feel bad. I mean, some of the big economic drivers in the country, Ontario, Quebec, they've long been on equalization. The issue for many is just how the formula works. Like when we talk healthcare transfer dollars, and the province next year is going to get about $1.1 billion, over $628 million of that I think is directly related to the healthcare transfer dollar. But I don't, I'm not reading this as a, some sort of feel-bad story because we're amongst all the provinces that I just mentioned that are receiving services to try to overcome fiscal disparities amongst provinces to provide reasonably comparable levels of public service. The one, and of course, provincial governments don't contribute to equalization, that equalization pot of money. It's individuals, it's resource revenue, federal taxation, and otherwise. The problem that many people in the country have, including yours truly, even though I talk about the fact that whether we like it or not, we're going to have to do business with Quebec regarding the Labrador trough and the minerals therein and other relations, including hydro. The problem that people talk about under this murky program that is equalization and the convoluted formula that it is, is that Quebec is unfairly and unduly richened by the equalization formula. So while we've heard some premiers talking about having an equalization referendum, including Chess Crosby when he was running to be the premier here in the province, and of course the many premiers repeatedly in the province of Alberta, you know, purposefully mischaracterizing how equalization works, but all the same, Alberta with the highest median wages in the country, the lowest taxes in the country, of course, they're major contributors to the uh, national economy and to the equalization pot of money. Quebec's going to get over $13 billion. 
it is an unfortunate loophole that they're able to take advantage of, and some of it is directly related to the upper Churchill contract. So the ongoing negotiations about redress between now back to 69 or what the next 17 years look like, because they're able to buy the power at the upper Churchill so extremely cheap, they're able to offer their residents subsidized rates. Consequently, when we talk about natural resource revenue, it's not that it gets backed out 100%, but they are selling the power to their residents because, in large part, because of our contribution at the Upper Churchill. So that's how they're able to manipulate the formula to get such a whopping big amount of money annually. If they were to increase their kilowatt rate in the province of Quebec by four cents to bring it to 10 cents, comparable to Toronto, their equalization payment would drop from $13.1 billion down to $5.1 billion. So they are purposefully trying to manipulate that formula, and it should not be the case. It absolutely should not. And then we talk about the government's ability to pay for social services. And it should be in place to reflect the lower cost of living in recipient provinces. You know, there's a vast difference between what it costs to hire professionals and housing and the delivery of social programs. Because if it's cheaper to operate on a variety of fronts in New Brunswick versus Ontario, Alberta, or BC, then We've got to try to find out a way to make this make more sense on the national scheme of things. Then, when we talk about a third variable that could, should, uh, pardon me, should be added to the simulator, is adjusting in accordance with the consumer price index to reflect the actual relative cost of services. If that was indeed included in a new modernized equalization formula, all of a sudden, in the era of fairness, Quebec's uh, payment would be reduced not from 13.1 to 5.1, it'd be all the way down to $700 million. So, you know, while some of the provinces, remember, when Jason Kenney was the Premier of Alberta, he was beating this drum nonstop. And of course, really, basically misleading his population, or pardon me, his citizenry, because he was a senior minister in Harper's cabinet when that formula was cemented. Now, there's been a few minor amendments made, but it's not working. I don't think I'm going to feel bad about being so-called a have-not. We've been a net contributor since 2008. Our natural resource revenues dropped off somewhat. You know, then you go back to the imposition of the COD moratorium. Our employment rate doubled. You know, 30,000 people, the, uh, the mass layoff, that was the moratorium. So there's been lots of moving parts as to why we are where we are an equalization, but I don't dispute some of the Premier's calls for not referendums on it necessarily, but we have to reopen it. Look at adding some of these amendments that might make it much more fair. Because for the province of Quebec, simply to be able to buy the power at bargain basement prices at the Upper Churchill and then be able to subsidize their rate payers, it's a double whammy on both sides. They get really cheap power as consumers in Quebec and the provincial government is able to bring in $13.1 billion. Let's make them charge market rates. I mean, that's where the rest of the country is. Now, we're going to have to see some subsidizing of our rates given the imposition of Muskrat Falls. But anyway, there's our equalization. We're back on at $214 million coming in the door. And then people will have ongoing concerns regarding Holyrood, and two out of the three turbines are down. The third is operating about half capacity. And I'll add to it one more concern that kind of went by the wayside, but it's Newfoundland Power's rate applications. Now, it's an annual thing. We know these things are coming, but what they've put in forward of the PUB now is a 1.5% increase in electricity bills effective July the 1st, followed by another 5.5% the following July. So, of course, uh, the province's consumer advocate says this looks like, in his opinion, Newfoundland Powers want to increase the rate of return. Uh, Power says, of course, that's not true, but those are the facts. They've made those applications. How are we doing out there, Dave? I don't know what kind of appreciable 
positive move forward has been made with the housing task force trying to deal with homelessness and of course most notably with Tent City. I know the advocates on the ground are really passionate in their work and uh, consideration of the issue, but between when this first popped up in October on Confederation Hill to today, permanent long-term solutions were never going to be available. And that's a terrible thing to know and to be able to say out loud. So they basically gone where we thought they would, you know, to the shelter system and hotel rooms. It should be easy enough for the province to calculate and craft a way to get away from for-profit emergency shelters. And to know that we've just uh, struck a committee to look at minimum regulations inside the emergency shelter world is simply not good enough. That could be done very, very quickly. You know, whether it be to tap down the violence and drug use and sexual solicitation, what have you. But we are going to have to find in the long term a different way to think about housing, period, in this country. And I'm saying the country because housing is not just a concern here, it's a concern everywhere. For the life of me, I don't understand why we don't try to mimic best practices that have been proven to work. There's no need to go back and try to reinvent the wheel. Yes, it's fine for there to be a $4 billion housing accelerator fund. And yes, it's fine for the province to come forward with some money. And yes, it's fine for the city of St. John's to apply for some of those federal dollars. But it takes a long time to build. So while we think about how we're going to build, where we're going to build, population density, let's try to use models that have proven to be extremely effective. One of the cities that's been called one of the two beacon cities uh, considered inside this world habitat work is Helsinki, Finland. In the mid-1980s, about 20,000 single homeless people in Finland itself. According to the estimates in 2021, that number is down to about 3,500. So they have a national prioritization on housing. And they say, for any hope of moving forward in your life to become more self-sustainable, prosperous, is, starts with housing. And it's hard to argue against that. So they don't have our old staircase system. You had a house, you become homeless, we put you in a shelter, then another transition house, and then we find your permanent solutions, hopefully. In Helsinki, if you're homelessness, if you're homeless, you're right away into permanent housing. A lot of not only uh, public offerings, but also in the private sector and the requirement for affordable housing, much uh, higher percentage rate than we see in this country. So the numbers are self-explanatory. You know, you can talk about it being socialism or what have you, but being homeless or precariously on the precipice of homelessness comes with the cost to me and you as the taxpayer. It simply does. And yes, we've got to speak to the predicament as to how people find themselves homeless and whatever wraparound or support services should be in place because people can indeed be very unwell with mental health concerns and or addictions. And not everyone who's homeless is in one of those two categories. But what they say in Helsinki, based on their move away from staircase to permanent solutions, they estimate that they save about 15,000 euros per year for every homeless person, given the fact that homeless people have a much higher rate of interaction with the healthcare system, possibly with the criminal justice system, access to social services. So what we should do at every turn is use real life data and talk about cost benefit. And of course that has to include societal and moral uh, inclusions, but the dollars and cents when we talk about either health care and the social determinants of health or the implications of homelessness, health care, criminal justice, social services, there's models out there that can, that can work. But that requires a tectonic plate mindset shift. It just does, doesn't it? Because the way we used to think about ho- uh, housing in this country has gone from that to a measure of economic, uh, economic upsides when we talk about housing starts or what have you. And housing starts in this country are nowhere, we're nowhere near where they need to be. And yes, I get it. I, I can hear you bawling at the radio. 
The population surge is further complicating this issue, and I think it's incumbent on the federal government to acknowledge that fact. It's not that you're all of a sudden called and callous to the plight of refugees and economic or political or otherwise, and they need to bring in skilled tradespeople, innovative uh, people, to help you know, push the economy along, but we're moving pretty quick. We're moving pretty quick. All right, what do I got here? Now let's, let's go off with a, uh, a good one. Da, 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 had it right in front of me. You know, we talked yesterday about a group that were, actually a shout out came on the show, about the folks at Dynamic Music Studios. And they, as opposed to having their annual concert, they're going to take the show on the road, go to some 10 long-term care, personal care homes to entertain the residents. Bravo. Another bravo going to the folks at Simply Wedding Newfoundland and Labrador. So we know getting married can cost on the average $40,000, which is complete and utter madness. But what they're also doing in, you know, repurposing decorations and the like, they're also repurposing flowers from the weddings. So what they're doing, they're accepting and collecting flowers up until the end of December. And what they're doing with these flowers, they're bringing it to the long-term care residents. Brilliant. Whether it be as centerpieces in the dining room or fresh, fra- fle- fresh flowers peppered around the facility or the home, pardon me. So whoever's behind this particular operation at Simply Wedding, good for you. Brilliant stuff. We're on Twitter. Not so brilliant. We're on VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openline at VOCM.com. When we come back, let's have a great show that requires your participation. Now, there's some new federal regulations regarding electric vehicles. John Siri, he's the man on that front. He's with Drive Electric NL, and he starts the, sh- the show. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Slight misspeak about electric vehicle regulations. The announcement is coming today. It's all going to be covered under what they call the Electric Vehicle Availability Standard. Join us on line number one to talk about what's expected is John Surrey. He's with Drive Electric NL. And good morning, John. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Very well this morning. How about you? Not too bad. So this is very exciting stuff for for anybody that's trying to drive and keep it affordable, for sure. So my understanding is the regulations will apply to the automakers, not the dealerships, and not necessarily to the buying public. So what are we expecting? So the problem that we see is when was the last time you saw an affordable subcompact car in a dealer lot? You don't see them anymore. No. Yet, if you if you travel around the world, if you go to places in Europe, especially, you'll see all kinds of options that we used to be able to get in the 80s and the 90s when, you know, gas prices were expensive and people were saying, "Hey, I still need to be able to drive." And what's happened is in North America, especially, uh, we've accepted that the SUV crossover is you know the car that everybody needs to have, and the price has gone up and up and up. Uh, just a, a couple of months ago, uh, in October, the current price of an average passenger car in Canada is hitting sixty-six, sixty-seven thousand dollars, depending on who you ask, which is crazy, crazy. Like the price of the wedding that you mentioned earlier in the in the uh, intro to the show. You know, who has that kind of money to buy a car? Well, enough people that the automakers are not bothering to come up with vehicles that are affordable for anybody. So what the availability standard seeks to do is say to the automakers, uh, you need to make a range of vehicles available, available to the buying public uh, across Canada to be able to get yourself into a vehicle which is affordable in the long run and is far cheaper to run uh, compared to a traditional gas car. 
I mean, I think that's the most attractive part for most people, even if you're interested in the emissions and your own carbon footprint. It's not just the sticker price in, but it's the overall savings regarding operations over time. My concern here, or I guess maybe my confusion, better said, is so if the automakers are going to earn credits for electric vehicles or hybrid sales, then I don't know if that's going to be automatically reflected in the sticker price because it's out of reach for some. And you just mentioned the average price of a vehicle in the country in the mid-60s. You can't force people to buy them. I mean, you look at Ford, they're curbing production on their F-150 electric uh, uh, variety. So I don't really understand the targeted approach here. You would think if government was trying to encourage more and more people to consider buying an electric vehicle or a hybrid, that the credits would be on this end. Now, there are subsidies that are available, both provincially and federally, but I don't understand you know, targeting the manufacturers because the manufacturer can't force me to buy an electric vehicle. No, but what they can do is come up with vehicles that are more affordable so more people can buy them, and that's, that's the trick there. Uh, you know, the, there's subsidies that apply in our province. We have a provincial one, and of course, there's a federal one. The federal one only applies to vehicles below a certain price level. And uh, and what people are finding is that if they want to get something that's uh, you know a, a longer range or whatever, it, it suddenly doesn't qualify for that federal rebate. So the rebate is pushing them to to come up with vehicles that are more affordable. But uh, I haven't gotten into the exact details of what the announcement will have yet. They haven't made available yet. Uh, but the goal here is that you need to do something that people will buy it. So the obvious result, you know, answer to that is to start supplying the the market with less expensive vehicles. Um, we've we've seen that all the large automakers have gone with these much larger vehicles. The the other thing that the availability standard does is it aligns Canadian regulations with what's being implemented in the U.S. and what we don't want to see happen is how all the affordable electric vehicles go to the U.S. And, uh, and then in Canada, you can only get the more expensive trims. We are already seeing that. That's what's so frustrating about this is that uh, you know, we can't seem to have nice things because uh, people will roll over and, all right, I'll spend an extra ten or fifteen or $20,000 on an SUV crossover when you know, you're only doing 10,000 kilometers a year. I mean, nobody can justify that. So this is the goal of this is to to say you need to make vehicles that sell uh, to the public so that we can get you know meet the targets. Yeah, the federal incentive is up to five thousand dollars, but I believe the threshold is at a fifty thousand dollar price point. If I'm not mistaken, here provincially, I think the number is twenty five hundred dollars. So uh, unless these are directly tied by contract to the manufacturers that their credits have to be used to reduce the purchase price of the vehicle. If that's not part of it, then we're just simply talking about really rich companies getting richer. No, I think it's more along the lines of, uh, you know, you got to come up with something that is affordable and uh, and sells a greater quantity. They'll, they'll constantly sell that top-end market uh, and now the, the goal here is that you have to have something that will be affordable and selling quantity uh, for the zero emission market as well. Because right now their solution for anybody that wants to spend less than 40000 or less than 30000 on a vehicle is to say, well, you can't get electric, and there it is. And the answer to that is now you need to make sure that there are vehicles available. Um, right now, there's about 45, 47 electric vehicles that are below the average price of a new car in Canada. But we want to, you know, this is aiming to see more of them for the ones that would compete with, you know, the, the subcontact car, um, everything from a Yaris to a, well, 
you know, I go back to the 80s. Everybody was able to afford a Chevette. You tried not to. You tried to get something a bit better. But there has to be vehicles uh, that would fit those, uh, you know, those low-income uh, price points for people that just need a vehicle but don't need anything else besides, you know, just a simple vehicle. The electric vehicle sales last year more than doubled. I think there was like a 126% increase. Hybrids about a 53% increase. John, do we happen to know the amount of power used by electric vehicles and hybrids, whether it be last year or the year before? Do we have that number? Well, I can tell you um, very simply, the average electric vehicle uses about 5,000 kilowatt hours. And that is dead on where my own measurements come with our various vehicles. So if you have a low mileage driver, somebody that's uh, it's a second car in the family, you'll use obviously less than that, probably half of that. Uh, if you've got a heavier vehicle like a, a pickup truck and you're doing a bit of driving, you'll see you'll use you know closer to six or seven thousand kilowatt hours. So the numbers that we ran some years ago for this province. Um, with 340 or 350,000 electric, uh, 350,000 passenger vehicles and light trucks in, in the province, uh, that works out to be around uh, 1.95 terawatt hours. I think was the last time I saw the figures run. Um, sounds like a lot of power, but in actual fact, we've added that amount of power to our grid over a period of time in the in the past. Uh, so we're not anticipating a, you know, a huge issue there. Um, one thing to consider, though, is is look at the cost. I mean, if you're driving a, a, sm- a reasonably sized electric vehicle around, you're doing 20,000 kilometers a year, which is a fair amount of driving. The power for that vehicle is still less than $500 a year. And you compare that to what people are spending for, for gas and for oil changes, uh, for some of these, you know, cheap to drive cars, it's still a fraction. It's still, you know, you're you're saving eighty percent by moving to electric. So, so getting a cheap car to start with would be great. Yeah, no kidding. So if on the average is five thousand kilowatt hours, and there's about four hundred registered in the province, so we're talking about two million kilowatt hours in the electric vehicle world. Uh, one of the concerns people have, you know, is even in my internal combustion engine rig, if the transmission goes, that's a serious cost. If I need a new engine, that's a serious cost. But people point to the uh, replacement cost of a battery. You know, we haven't arrived at the world where, like Toyota says, in the next couple of years, they'll have a solid-state battery, which will really be a game-changer. But what is the cost to put a new battery in my electric vehicle? Batteries are repairable items. Um, one of the things I love about the people in this province is how we uh, figure out how to repair things. We uh, you know, take it apart and figure out how it works and get the parts from another one like it, and uh, you know, we're good to go and repair it. And it's the same with batteries. So you know, just as we have you know, companies like uh, Constantine's that will do a cylinder head and a repair on the engine like that, uh, we can expect to see companies starting up that will do battery swaps and battery uh, repairs. These companies already exist where there's more electric vehicles on the road. I mean, uh, in Quebec, in BC, they're they're dropping packs out of these older cars. And when I say older, you know, long past the eight-year warranty on the powertrain and battery, uh, you know, 10 and 11-year um, old cars are getting repaired. Uh, you know, the battery packs dropped out, repair the modules for a fraction of the cost of a new pack. 
know, you do see the occasional story going around, oh, they wanted 30000 40000 for a new battery, but that's the same number that you'll get if you walk into your dealer and say, hey, my, uh, my truck needs a new engine, what's that cost? You know, the dealer price uh, for an after warranty repair is always going to be higher, and replacing an entire component is always going to be higher, but it's not, it's very rarely necessary. In the world of repurposing batteries, of which that also happens, but then, and I don't know if you're the right person to ask about this, John, it's uh, the consideration about the critical minerals required. And yes, I do think things change when we go away from uh, the current battery technology into solid-state batteries, but with the world of mining for that, those minerals, how does that jive with it when we talk about carbon footprint and emissions? Because mining comes with a huge implication regarding carbon emissions. And then, you know, people will talk about human rights where some of these minerals are extracted, what have you. But what do you know about, you know, what the thirst for these vehicles? And we're still only talking about about 3% or 3.5% of the global vehicle fleet is electric at this point. But what do you have to say about some of those concerns people voice regarding mineral extraction to make the battery in the first place? Well, I'll ask them what they're talking on the phone with because they also have a battery in it. Sure. Um, lots of stories going around about what's the impact in the environment. Suddenly, everybody who doesn't own an electric car is an environmentalist, and yet they turn a blind eye onto the impact of extracting uh, hydrocarbons. And the extraction of hydrocarbons is being replaced with a one-time extraction of minerals needed for batteries. Um, so, you know, you, everything humans do, make an impact on the planet, make an impact on the environment. The, the, the challenge is, is to lessen that impact. A one-time impact to create a battery is far less. Uh, it's, it's made up for itself in the first 12 to 18 months of use compared to the ongoing impact to the environment of extracting fossil fuels, refining, transporting, and delivering, and then burning it. It's, uh, as one person said, hydrocarbons are a wonderful compound. It's a shame to burn them. Um, and that's that's true with you know with what we're doing. Uh, the other thing to notice, uh, a couple of points on the battery part. First of all, it's one-time extraction, and then all those components can be recycled. The entire pack can be recycled and reused and made into new batteries. But before you even recycle it, it can be repurposed as standby power. So it's not like we're taking these things, extracting, making an electric car, running it for 8, 10, 20 years, whatever, and then throwing it in the landfill. It never happens. It's too too valuable a component. Uh, the second thing is that the, the minerals that are hard to get are difficult to, to extract and so on. The technology is increasing rapidly, uh, replacing some of these hard-to-get minerals with things that are more commonly available. Um, you know, sodium-based batteries and so on are all, you know, all in the talks and the trades and so on. So there's, there's all kinds of things that are happening to improve that. I mean, we, we've done this for years. We've done this for years and years. I and mean, we used to have oil lamps burning in the house. You know, we don't need to do that anymore. We used to have incandescent bulbs that got hot and caught fire and uh, used a lot more electricity. And now nobody would dare, you know, dream of putting one in. We always do LED. Um, this is another example of evolving technology, for sure. John, appreciate your time as usual. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me on. Anytime. All the best. Thank you. Bye-bye. It's John Siri with Drive Electric NL. And, you know, uh, Mark sends along a tweet saying that he drove 52,000 kilometers last year. Total charge was 8,507 kilowatt hours, and he cost, it cost him 1000 bucks. If you drove 52,000 kilometers last year in your ICE, then you spent way more than that. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're talking about the privatization of the air ambulance service. Don't go away. Oh. 
Ring in the new year with a special edition of the Irish Newfoundland Show, 9 p.m. New Year's Eve. Welcome back. Let's go to line number five. Say good morning to the president at NAEP. That's Jerry Earl. Jerry, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty, to you and your listeners. You know, the, I think everyone agrees that with all of the contracts in place for the ground ambulance service, some 60 of them, they need to be consolidated. We need to figure out the disparity between r- working rural and urban and private and public and all those other comp- comp- complexities. But air ambulance, it kind of came out of nowhere where the province apparently was told or advised that they couldn't buy a fleet of helicopters and or aircraft. Consequently, they were going to bring in someone to operate their ambulance service. What does that mean potentially for your members in that area? It has a significant impact, Patty, and first of all, we were advocating for the consolidation of the air road ambulance system just for the very reasons the minister talks about, to avoid the fragmentation. But they're doing a, exactly in this request for proposal what they're saying, so they're double-speaking, they're actually going to cause a fragmentation further now of the air and road ambulance. But let me talk specifically about the impact for a second, and many Newfoundlanders and Labrador understand that. Um, how members are affected, and Newfoundlanders are And let me just tell you one small piece of this. About six weeks ago, Patty, two individuals were recruited uh, by work service and transportation or in, uh, infrastructure, transportation infrastructure, to come to work for the residents of Newfoundland and Labrador. Two of these individuals relocated, one from the west coast of the country, took his young family, came here to Newfoundland and Labrador six weeks ago on a permanent job posting, posted by the government of Newfoundland and Labrador, sent to North Carolina, uh, him and his other co-worker were newly hired to train on these air ambulances operated by the government of Newfoundland and Labrador. Significant cost to taxpayers, but more so significant costs to these two individuals, in particular one that relocated from the west coast of the country. So you can imagine six weeks before Christmas, the impact on their families, the stress that's placed on them now, knowing that the job they were committed to, that they relocated to Newfoundland Labrador for, for uh, no longer exists. And these two individuals quit well-paying jobs to come back and work for emergency services here in Newfoundland Lab- Labrador, to be told. So as they were being hired, did somebody not on the theory team know did not somebody on the Fury team know that they were going to get rid of these jobs and what they were doing to these two individuals is an absolute injustice? I, I wouldn't know. But in the world of pilots, I mean, there's a shortage of pilots in this country and in many modern countries in the world. So why do you think that, whether it be, I, know, I know you represent more than pilots, whether it be mechanics Absolutely. or other support staff, why do you think the incoming company to manage the system would be quick to ditch the pilots in place given the fact that it's hard to come by a pilot? Well, number one, we would have no idea who this proponent may be and what their needs will be. Uh, but again, going from what they were committed to in the public sector, uh, it's easy for a minister to say they will have a position. Will the position be comparable to it? Like I said, there's more than pilots here. There's a ground crew. Uh, there's very specialized positions. There's air ambulance dispatchers. So there's a group here that's affected that are all from here in the province. Uh, we don't know uh, if the proponent will need any or all of them, whether the job would be comparable, because there's certainly not comparable jobs in the public sector. Like, a pilot's not going to find a job anywhere else in the public sector. Uh, so would that even exist? But the bottom line is this did not need to occur, uh, because these pilots and the ground crews made representation to the government not once, but several occasions. 
that would have found efficiencies in the system. One of the things we've recommended even in recent weeks, if they want to find break up the fragmentation, we could never understand why the air ambulance was over under work service and transportation and not under health community service, especially now with the creation of a new health care board in the province, which apparently can't manage the ambulance system because they're contracting that as well. But why was the air ambulance not put under the amalgamated board with a true integrated road and air ambulance system and actually have a proponent come in? We suggest that, well, if that's the case, why not have a proponent come in and look at the system first, and then if they're truly able to manage, they would make the recommendations on what would happen with the air ambulance. But they're not even given this operator now that they're contracting out, apparently because they don't fear it, you know, or the ability to manage the system. They're not even given this proponent a chance to say, here's what we could do better, and in all likelihood would align with what our members had recommended back in 2021 and previous to that. I'm still a little bit confused. You know, the minister says that uh, he and the department were advised that we can't operate it in the public system. Do you have any understanding as why they're saying that they can't operate it? Because currently we, we do. We we have, and for close on 50 years we have. Uh, and again, we can't, it, it appears that nobody can give us answers. I don't know who the advisors were. We can't find out who those advisors were. They're not disclosed to us. People don't even realize, people of Labrador and the Northern Peninsula better be aware that actually in this request for a proposal, there's going to be a downgrade of service. When we brought that to their attention, it was like deer and headlights looking at us. Nobody could give us an answer because our current air ambulance that the people of Newfoundland and Labrador own, as we call two life ports, which basically means they can transfer two pa- critically ill patients at the one time. Well, guess what? In the request for proposal, it's asking for a singular life port. So it'll take two flights to get somebody from Labrador or the Northern Peninsula or the West Coast into Newfoundland. So it's actually going to delay services. These two aircraft that we had, we have just spent significant resources to upgrade. They're not old by any standards. You or I might think of a car that's 10 years old, but an aircraft that's a little over 10 years old is not old by any standard. So we have two fairly modern aircraft that's been adapted to serve Newfoundland and Labrador that can land on any airstrip in Newfoundland and Labrador. And even another union just went and said their own staff, which staff these aircraft are basically saying they find a much better service with the current government air service than what they get from private operators. And our own crews tell us that every day. You just can't compare the two. So you can imagine now if we turn this over to a total private entity, some faceless corporation outside of Newfoundland and Labrador, once our aircraft is gone, you can imagine now we're going to be on the hook not able to go back because we're then stuck with a proponent that probably can't really service Newfoundland and Labrador to the standard that the public air ambulance can today, Betty. And I said, we, we can't get the answers. And the short answer is they haven't told us who these advisors are. They won't tell us who the advisors are. Because the advisors that we rely on, the pilots and the ground crew that provide the service saying what they're asking for is not comparable to what we have and will actually be worse than what we have. I appreciate the time as usual, Jerry. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Patty, for the opportunity. Take care. Bye-bye. That's Jerry Early, the president of that. Nape, uh, let's take a break. When we come back, Chris, appreciate your patience. He wants to talk about Ten City. And then Barry Petney is the PC member for Conception Bay South. Talking about the story, we've now learned some 2,700 deficiencies at the construction site, which is the Western, Re- Western Memorial Regional Hospital. Do not go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number what, Dave? I um, haven't been paying attention to the time in the queue. Let's go to line number two. Chris, you're on the air. 
Hi, Patty. How are you today? Well, all right. Thanks. How are you doing? I'm not doing too bad. Um, yeah, I wanted to call with regards to the uh, police presence down at Tin uh, City for Change on Friday. I know you were talking to some people uh, the past couple of days about what happened down there, and I just wanted to, to speak up. I was down there all day and kind of give you a heads up on what uh, what happened from my point of view. Sure. Um, so we're the city. Uh, sorry, the province has provided garbage disposable three times a week. And so this has happened a number of times. The contracting company that comes down there is, is really helpful. We get along quite well. All the volunteers that go down there, as well as all the residents, the, the resident protesters are really appreciative and, and thankful for the, the services they provide. And um, most times there's maybe been an officer or two down there to accompany them. This time before the, um, the cleanup crew arrived, there were 12 officers on site. Um, as well as a, a trailer, the police, uh, an RNC trailer, like a storage trailer. Um, and they were all parked down by the pool house uh, on ba- Bannerman. I don't know if you're familiar with the area exactly, but... Uh, I'm an East Ender, yeah. Yeah, so yeah, a bit, a bit farther away from the Colonial Building, you know, not in the Colonial Building parking lot per se. And um, so I, I, I asked the officers uh, why they were there, and they, were, they said to me they were just there to help assist the cleanup crew. Uh, this was was told to me by an inspector. Uh, there was also a superintendent on site that day. Um, probably about three or four hours they were there. Um, so uh, no point did any of the officers, uh, including those two uh, high-ranking officers, assist with any of the actual garbage removal itself. Um, the constables, or uh, you know, not not the superintendent and inspector, remained in their vehicles uh, until all the garbage cleanup was completed at which point they all assembled in the Colonial Building grounds. So once the cleanup had been completed, there were there's no other garbage to take away. So there was really no reason for them to be there, at which point uh, the superintendent and inspector, as well as a, a government official, they just referred to themselves as the property manager, uh, started going around and pointing at tents um, that were there and saying, um, this one looks like it's not being used or this one is no longer necessary, at which point I, I spoke to them and said, no, all the tents that are here uh, are required. They're occupied by uh, by the resident protesters, the people who can't or don't have access to safe, long-term, and affordable housing. Um, so, <clears throat> again, I was, was a lot of back and forth with, with the officers. And at this point, after having, you know, spoke with them about why they were there and they said they were to help the cleanup, I said, what's that trailer for? And they said it's to take into custody possessions of people so that they could hold them for the people to pick them up. Which to me is if, if they're there to assist with garbage removal, we don't need to bring property into custody. So this was very clear to me, I'm, at least from my perspective, that the police were there to dissemble, if not all of the camp, the protest, at least a portion of it, and to reduce its ability to provide the support that we're providing to, to the, the protesters down there. And so it was a it was a real eye opener for me on 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 what was happening, you know, with, within the police. And again, I, we, we talk, some some folks who we we organized with also spoke with the task force and said the task force didn't have any idea what was going on. So I was just really concerned about the police and their you know their presence down there and maybe maybe overstepping their bounds or you know acting outside of their scope. I'm not really sure. Again, this is something I would would hope to get some more answers to about why exactly they were there, but it seems pretty clear to me that they were there to dismantle the camp, the, the protest. But did they do it? 
No, we, again, and I think the only reason they didn't was because of the outpouring of support from uh, the neighbours and advocates and volunteers at Tent City, as well as the media presence that showed up. So, again, I was there from around 10, 9 o'clock or 9.30. The police showed up around 12.30, uh, the cleaning company around 1. Cleanup was done around, I'd say, around between 1.45 and 2.00. And at that point, when the police moved, you know, it started to assemble. At that point, I was like, I'm concerned here. This is this is not normal. It's not more normal behavior. And I and I reached out to, again, people that we organize with, um, the volunteers and advocates that come down and support uh, the protesters. And they showed up very quickly. And some of them also contacted the media. Once the once NTV was on site, the police, uh, the constables. Uh, dispersed, got back in their vehicles and left, I would say, within 10 to 15 minutes. Uh, the inspector and superintendent were around for a bit longer, but soon after left. Once NTV showed up, the superintendent and inspector no longer came onto the actual phone of the building grounds and stayed only on the driveway in the parking lot. So I feel uh, if, you know, we didn't have the outpouring of support, they would have moved without any regard for what we were asking them to leave. Um, multiple times I had to come and say, no, this is, this is someone's possessions. Uh, the superintendent pointed at a tent and said, this is garbage. It doesn't need to be here, which to me just shows a lack of compassion and understanding of the issues that are going on here, that they would point at someone's only belonging, their only means of survival beyond the support that we're trying to offer them down there and call it garbage. It was, it was just appalling and it was frankly very upsetting to me that, that that's that's the attitude that we're seeing from from high-ranking police officials. So describe the tent. Was it a tent that was actually in good repair, that someone was actually using and was keeping the elements as best possible in a tent away from the resident? So was that tent actually even being used? It absolutely was, yeah. Okay. Yeah, every tent that's down there is being used, maybe not every single day, but uh, if someone's not sleeping there every single day, there is... Uh, you know, their their survival equipment, their clothes, their belongings are stored in those areas um, because they have nowhere else to store them. So, again, maybe not every tent is slept in, but the vast majority of them are, and if they aren't slept in one night, they are the next. Uh, and it's just like you or me, you know, we might not come and sleep in our house every night. The same for these folks, you know. They, they might have a place to stay one night and not the next, or they might be out and that they just don't want to come. They want to come back to where they're staying. And I don't see any reason with that. And I don't think anyone needs to justify their continual presence in their house to, to maintain ownership of it. <laughs> you know, and I've been taking a task on this. And, you know, people, when asked what they need or want, it's permanent housing. But that is just really one of those cliches of easier said than done. Because if that was, if it was as simple as it's available and we just need to occupy permanent housing, then I'm sure we'd be moving towards that. Now, there's lots of complexities inside that. It's the number of Newfoundland Labrador Housing Corporation units that have been in disrepair and have been boarded up. And that should never be the case of the volume that it currently is. So when we talk about utilizing shelters and hotel rooms until we get to permanent options for as many people that need them. I mean, I spoke this morning to uh, better uh, models of housing in other jurisdictions like Helsinki, Finland, which I'm going to continue to use that example because they think about housing different than we think about it in this country for the last 30 years. In this country, it's a measure of economic success as opposed to, or your largest piece of personal equity that you'll ever enjoy versus a place to live. So it's going to require a real different thought. It's fine to have all these solutions put forward, pots of money to build, but it takes time 
to build, which is another problem in this province. So by the time I identify a piece of land, go through the engineering design of the home, get the permits to build, it can take the carry costs over the course of a couple of years or more before that's even a permanent housing unit option. So there's a lot to this, and there's no need for us to be in this perpetual loop of for-profit emergency shelters with no minimum standards, oversight, monitoring, and enforcement. Like, it should never have arrived at this in the first place. 100%. And, and, and something I'd like to mention here is that, uh, again, if, if those shelters and those services were adequate, then we, we wouldn't be down there at this protest. So we're providing supports that the government can't otherwise. We're trying to build community and a capacity to take care of one, in, one another. And it seems to me that the government... Uh, you know, are ineffective of, of doing that. And to me, it's like they should either do the job of that or get out of our way so that we can. You know, we're asking for some pretty basic stuff down there, which is basically a reduced police presence, uh, you know, just access to bathrooms that we don't have to worry about being taken away from us, and simple power, Wi-Fi, until we can find these long-term solutions. These are just simple acts that we're, we're trying to get from the task force, and they and they dilly around and they don't actually give us straight answers and and frankly they're lying john abbott went on cbc today and said that there's only one person down there that they've housed and sheltered everyone and i know that to be a lie i've been down there almost every day for the past two months there were seven people on saturday there were six on sunday there were five last night the lowest number we ever had was three so i don't know when they go and do their counts but it's not when people are spending the night there, when they're sleeping there. They might show up at noon and leave by, by 5, but they're not there when the people are actually there. You know, people leave and go out and they go about their business. They do things. They have lives. So they're not constantly in their tent. You know, again, they're just like me and you. They go out and do stuff. Sure. And I'm also, I have to get to the news, but not all shelters are created equally bad or good either. So there's a difference between some of the shelters where we hear some very, very serious stories versus others where they have much more pragmatic oversight and enforcement of the rules therein. So, uh, Chris, I appreciate your time this morning. Thanks for the call. No problem. Take, take, take care. Bye bye. All right. Uh, let's get to the break. When we come back, Barry Penton's uh, there to talk about the deficiencies in the Western. Memorial Regional Hospital, and Tom wants to talk about the St. John's budget, and then we'll talk with you. Don't go away. Make a request anytime by calling 709-273-5211 or 1-888-590-8626, and your request just might win you a cozy VOCM winter toque. Your Merry Christmas station. Your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Say good morning to the PC member for Conception Bay South. That's Barry Petten. Good morning, Barry. You're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. How are you? Best, uh, best kind. Thanks. How are you? Oh, good. Good, thanks. Good. Patty, I'm just calling in this follow-up. as a release I uh, issued yesterday on the Western Memorial Hospital and uh, the 2,700 deficiencies, actually. And me and you, I know we've had, I've had spoken to many media, and I mean you have had many conversations about the Petrie, Petrie's in the province and what I consider to be improvements needed and what have you on various other issues. I know we spoke about the Gander and Grand Paul's long-term care issue quite some time, quite many times. And, you know, Petty, this just brings it back. A month ago you go out and you have this ribbon-cutting, you know, the, the, you know, the photo op, I suppose, you know, the, you know, the liberal photo op, I look at it. But it's fine. When they, had the, when they had it, I mean, me and most people out there were saying, good job, you know, I'm Tom, I'm Budget, we're getting the hospital open, it's good for people on the West Coast, it's, it's good news, and no, no, no disputes, good news, it's good to see, it's long overdue. 
Then you go and do an ATIP, because you do your due diligence in our world over in opposition to make sure everything is above board, and then you see 2,700 deficiencies, you know, and the list goes on to those. I mean, a deficiency is a deficiency no matter what it is. And, I mean, I liken it to, I mean, it come to me when I read it, the first thing jumped to me was when you buy a house, if you're going to do a turnkey or buy a house off someone, you're not going to sign off and take possession at home and start mortgage payments when you've got a load of deficiencies in that home, Patty. This just defies logic. It, it makes no sense. And it comes back again to, I don't know how these teachers are managed. We've seen it happen again in Grand Falls, and now we're seeing a repeat out in, out in, out in Cornerbrook. And, I, I mean, it's not about us getting against P3s, because I speak a lot about it, but we've got to do this right. And this is, uh, I like to always say, too, is it's not Andrew Fury's money, it's not the Liberal government money, it's public money. And we all should be concerned our money is being spent. And I don't know if this is the right expenditure of money. You're taking possession, and from what I've learned, once possession is taken, the payments start in these, to the consortiums and these P3 models, and you're paying the mortgage, and you're, you're accepting. So we don't know now what's going on. They, they were telling us during the opening, I know one of the officials, we're moving in equipment, and I was left to move in equipment, and we bring in the supplies, and then we're, we're taking patients. And all good news, but we know that's not the case, Patty. With 2,700 deficiencies, no matter what level they are, minor or serious, that's going to take time. Okay, but just <clears> let me <throat> clarify. Have we taken full and complete ownership and now making payments on the yet-to-be-completed facility? Well, Patty, that's, used, that's, that's what happens in these processes, and that's what I'm learning. That's what I'm being told, that, yes, once you accept, once you accept that, you went out, when that ceremony was held, they've took ownership of that hospital. Now, I stand to be corrected, but I've, what I've been told, that's, that's the information I've gotten. But regardless, you know, even if you never took pay, even if you're not taking payments, you're, you're, you know, you're accepting ownership, this is a completed hospital, and it's not completed. So what are you doing? Is it smoke and mirrors? Like, what, you know, what, what's the public being public, and me included? We think everything is fine, and we're all job are ready to bring in the beds and the patients, and that's not the case. No. It's misleading the public, Patty, and it's, it's frustrating. I see this over and over again. In my world, where I follow, you know, I'm closely watching every you know, government do, and that's my job. It's frustrating, and we're seeing this just repeat every time, and it's, it's frustrating. So, for me, I mean, when we saw the deficiencies that were identified in the 260-bed long-term care facilities in Central, the end result was it took longer and longer to open them, consequently more and more costs. So, on budget now doesn't mean on budget at the end of this. Secondly, when the complicating factors with those two long-term care facilities, the people who would have been residents were very likely in a hospital bed further clogging up the system, which is a contributing factor to some of the surgical backlogs that we see. So there's a lot of complications when we see these types of backlogs, or pardon me, deficiencies identified. But let me ask you, what would be the difference in the inspection schedule? You know, when you rough something in, you get it inspected, and then the completed product is expected, and different you know, different uh, formulas and time frames for different things like electrical and otherwise. So do you have any idea why there would be a difference in how things are inspected if a private company is building it for a private purpose and or the uh, government went out RFP with a government-controlled, operated, and funded model for this new hospital? What would the, 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 the difference be, pardon me, in investi- pardon me, inspections? Well, Patty, that's the question, and I, I ask, I've asked that question openly many times, and I never get a clear answer. I mean, if we were doing this, like you say, the RFP process, you're following every step along the way, are we not doing this in Petries? It's Obviously, we're not, because, I mean, you've seen in Grand and Grand Falls, there was showers that were on level floors, on even floors. My God, if an inspector, if inspectors can then look at that and pass in that, we got a major problem. So, obviously, it's, it's, it's not the same level of inspections, and that's what I've been saying many times. I don't think we're getting, a, I don't think it's been inspected properly, or the level of oversight is not is not what it should be on P3s that was like
like on the old-fashioned way of doing uh, government projects when you had an inspector there 24-7. I mean, that's, that's I think, the crux of the problem. I mean, we, that needs to be clarified. Because it's fine to say you're doing it, oh, we're going to fix this, it's not going to cost us more, or whatever the case. But again, Patty, there's hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars, billions of dollars in these projects in public money, people's personal Newfoundland and Labrador's money, and I don't think it's, I don't think, I think we should get clearer answers on how this money's been spent. And if it's been, like, I mean, inspection, that's the, that's the basics of it, Patty. That's, that's, the, that's the ABCs of any, any project. And, I mean, when you're seeing some of this stuff, obviously, obviously, this inspection's not up to scratch. Whatever it is, they need to redo it and, re, re, you know, re, remodel the, the process that they're going in with these peach trees, because right now, this is this not, not a good law. It's not working, right? Yeah, I mean, there's some examples of a public-private partnership that absolutely has not worked. Now, the go-to line by governments that entertain these P3s is that the private sector is more nimble and able to be uh, on time and budget, much unlike what are government-fueled projects, because government contracts are well-renowned as being real gravy. But the fact of the matter is, inside the P3, you know, there's real examples in Ontario where P3s in the infrastructure world of transportation have been dismal failures. Can it be done in certain areas? Probably. Inside of healthcare? Mm, not so sure. Inside the world of prisons? Uh, we've got to be careful. There's nothing wrong with profit, but the examples are now growing where the model that we're using is not working. So, you know, going back to the well, even if it's something that's fundamental, here's the timeline for inspections. Very much like every other operation under the sun, here's what we're going to do so that we can identify them because before we finish first phase and we have a photo op with a big cardboard key, those types of things. So something is not really working the way it's intended in this model. Can it work? Maybe. Is it working for the three examples we just discussed? No. And Patty, yeah, one other one I might add to this, and me and you spoke about this as well, it's no mental health hospital over there, and I spoke out about that. It was $39 million more, and it was going to take a year and a half longer, but yet to give it to this other bidder, and then they justified the reasons for it. I mean, that went into the fairness monitor and what have you, and that was a that was a debate for another day, but that still is part of the Petrie issue and Petrie concerns. I, I think the full Petrie model needs to be reviewed from top to bottom because I still, I, I strongly say, and I will continue to say, I don't think we're getting the best bang for our buck and I don't think we're getting the outcomes and not what, what they need to be. Ultimately, I've got to get someone to answer that question. Why why does this happen to the extent that it does? Because it's very much unlike any other project that I've seen in the recent past or certainly anything I've been involved with, which is a fair bit. Uh, Barry, appreciate the time. Uh, thanks, Patty. And Patty, boy, one more minute. I just want to wish you and your listeners a Merry Christmas, all the best, and New Year. Thanks for the time this past year. I'm sure we'll chat again in the, in the New Year on many important issues. Thanks and, a lot. And Merry Christmas to you and yours, Barry. Thank you. Okay, thanks, okay, Patty. Bye-bye. Okay. Barry Patton is the PC member for Conception Bay South. Break time. When we come back, Tom wants to talk about the most recent uh, St. John's budget, which is going to see property tax increased in the neighborhood of 13%. Commercial mill rates going from 2.6 mills all the way to 29.5 mills. What? Let's uh, take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number four. Tom, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning to you. I want to start by wishing you and David and all the listeners a very Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays. The same to you, Tom. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Jean Haber was on last week, and and I love listening to her. She's very wise. However, she mentioned about going outside for walks, which is really healthy, but getting vitamin D, unfortunately, during the winter months. There's not enough UVB in the in the uh, sun's rays to create vitamin D. So, important note that people should be taking a vitamin D supplement. 
during the winter in Newfoundland Labrador has impacts on depression as well as cancers and immune system boosting and all that stuff so I think some of that you know is maybe offered as colloquially you know yeah, because getting exactly. outdoors and a bit of of uh, vitamin D you know nothing like a bit of it D anyway correct enough. yeah no, and I know she just it was kind of like an offhanded uh, comment but I just wanted to keep that top of mind because it's actually one of the things Newfoundlanders Labradorians are deficient in most of the year okay so um, the uh, the Scrooges down at City Hall uh, dropped their budget on us, and and, and I, w- I want to first of all acknowledge that obviously our employees, including the councillors and the mayor and the deputy mayor, all work very hard, and and they're operating within, I, g- I guess, a way of running the city, very similar to the way the province runs the province, in that uh, you know the future is the same as the past, and we're just going to keep doing things the same way we always did, and it, and we're we're in this this room that meets every week and uh, and we're going to make the same the same decisions to keep on keeping on but that's not the reality in the world it's not the reality in the country it's not the reality in the province and it's definitely not the reality in the city that the residents and the businesses that are operating the vast majority of the residents and the businesses that are operating are living in Let's give the folks some numbers just for the context. So residential mill rate going up, and of course, consequently, the average homeowner is going to pay an additional $240 per year. Residential water tax go up by 5 bucks. It all adds up to about a 13% increase. The business community got hit particularly hard. The uh, budget this year, the overall budget is up 3.2%, I believe the number was, over $333 million. So we're spending a lot of money. They're talking about bringing in an additional almost $18 million from the residential and commercial mill rate increases. The most impactful consideration here is the fleet rotation. So when we're talking about snow clearing and the snow clearing equipment, the snow clearing budget, I think, is, what, $25.5 million for 2024? But the problem is with the infrastructure. So apparently some 60% of the vehicles or the pieces of equipment were down at some point last winter. You know, when we talk about rotation, people I know in that world doing logistics and these types of uh, issues, they say that, you know, it should be rotations in around 10, maybe 12% as opposed to getting to a time when you've got some 60% of equipment down, which comes with enormous costs no matter how you slice it. So I'm not so sure how attentive we've been to it. Same thing with the garbage trucks. Yeah, and you know, and unfortunately, we've allowed our leaders. It started with Cornerbrook when the mayor, uh, who indicated that the reason the budget was going up was because the cost of chemicals to do their water treatment was going up. And what's lost in all this conversation is it isn't the increase in snow clearing. All the pro- all the municipalities um, are very smart in their way or deceptive in their way of doing their budgeting and how they display their their financial statements. Well, now, you're not disputing that there's been some input input costs that have gone up. I mean, if it's impacted me, it's impacted the cities. Like, I mean, I don't begrudge them an issue regarding, you know, the increased costs for asphalt and concrete and the like. Those are just real things that are unavoidable, aren't they? And I'm not giving them a pass because I'm a St. John's resident. I am displeased, to say the very least. No, but we've allowed them to have that that narrative. The reality is the reason that our taxes are going up, the vast majority of the reason our taxes are going up, both in Cornerbrook and in St. John's, is because labor has gone up. If you look at the eight managers that meet in that sit around that table in um, in the city, um, they're making an extra thirteen thousand dollars since they weren't more than they were making in twenty one, two thousand twenty one. On average, the managers uh, are making seven thousand dollars more. So there's there's like one hundred and eighty nine people that are that we get the information on. We we actually can't get the information on how much. 
our unionized workers make. When you do an ATIPA, they refer to the union. The union's not bound by ATIPA to give us the information. I don't understand how that works. But we are spending the vast majority of this increase is directly because of decisions made by council. And in particular, and I know it's difficult with wage wages, you know, you need to retain people. I don't want to oversimplify it. Uh, and you know, but but if business as usual continues, which is what's happening, um, you know, what we're getting ourselves in the situation. I mean, it happened during COVID. During COVID, all the governments looked at each other and said, "Don't do anything," and they didn't. They kept paying people, whether they were needed or not. And there was never any thank yous from any of these employees. It didn't, you know, all the radio ads that we heard was like, "We're heroes. Like, don't don't attack us. Don't do anything bad." And and they were heroes. And I don't want to take anything away from it, but there was never advertising that followed that said, "Thank you very much for continuing to pay us." And not only pay us, but pay us more. And although these are very difficult situations, but the people, the residents of of the city and of the province, are getting poorer. The vast majority are getting poorer. And and there's no attempt to address that. Last year we took from in the city of St. John's we took from reserve money. Now we knew last year we had a problem, and we knew this year there would be a problem. But there's nothing different happening. And in actual fact, you know, they nonchalantly decided to spend $10 million more on the Muse Center to make it bigger, to give it a walking track, and have a steam room. And that's kind of the mentality. And the question is, is our equipment broken because, A, we have new employees, and maybe they're not trained as well as they should be, or maybe they're not as careful as they should be, or maybe they're distracted, or maybe we can't, we can't get mechanics to work on the equipment. And these are all legitimate challenges. But as long as the attitude is... We just got to keep on keeping. We have to keep on investing in infrastructure. Yes, I know. I know St. John Sports and Entertainment is costing us over six and a half million dollars. When and when it was built, it was going to be like a five hundred thousand dollars subsidy or eight hundred thousand dollars subsidy. Oh, but we got to keep investing. But the vast majority of what we're spending our money in is on is salaries. You know, the, the hundred ninety some odd people that we pay that we know how much we pay them. On average, they're making one hundred sixteen thousand dollars a year. That's seven thousand dollars more each than they were making two years ago. These people, although they may have higher standards of living and may have a lot of expenses and maybe mortgages are hitting them hard, too, and taxes are going to go up for them, too, if they live in the city. But there's a disconnect amongst the people who make the decisions as to the reality that we're all facing, that you know we're all in our households making different decisions. And I don't think that's happening around the council tables, around the House of Assembly. I mean, I think we pay lip service to it, maybe, and I know it's difficult, and I'm not trying to oversimplify it. But the future is not looking any more promising. When, you know, you just think, hey, we're going back on equalization. Well, that means that the future of the province is not as good as it was a few years ago, and we squandered our opportunity from our non-renewable natural resources. And although there is, you know, we all have to put our heads together and, and our bodies together and, and keep on trying to find a way to have a sustainable province. But our council and our managers, who we pay an awful lot of money to, they're not on the same page as the average household in this city. And they need to be. And it's and whenever a kind and Ron Ellsworth is a great person, is not being critical because I, I think it's just it's just the group think that is in this province when you're in a leadership role. The world has changed. The sooner we all realize it and make different decisions. Like for example, maybe garbage collection should only happen every two weeks. As a very small example. You know, the province decided not to have twenty four hour snow clearing. 
Um, maybe that's the type of decisions we need to make. Like, I'm not saying that's a good a good suggestion. Maybe we should make sure there's no studded tires on people's tires in the city of St. John's because that's wearing our roads down prematurely. Like, yeah, there's no, a lot but, of things. Maybe to bolster your point, I mean, garbage collection is only going to cost about $13 million. Uh, now that's a 34% increase. But when we talk about the numbers of people working for the city, the rate of pay afforded to them, that is a huge chunk of the $333 million annual budget. The, and, you know, the, the issue regarding uh, subsidy for St. John's Sports and Entertainment is absolutely the low-hanging fruit, but I think that speaks to people being optically uh, f- frustrated with how the city is operating at this moment in time. Because, I mean, $6.6 million is not a huge chunk of change, but time after time, over time, over time, an additional $577,000 for that operation this year, I do think we're probably going to head in a different direction with that organization. I think they've got good people there. What that looks like in the future remains to be seen. Maybe I'm a cockeyed optimist. But the one that really kind of I'm still confused by is the backlash regarding Metrobus. So there's a reduction in funding for Metrobus. Ridership has soared. And that's a good thing. Metrobus, of all things, sitting on $5 million in the black. They paid down $1.7 million in debt, sitting on $3.3 million to enhance operations. I read that as a good news story, but apparently it's not good news for people who are actually riding the bus. Our final thoughts to you, Tom, before I take a break. I hope everybody has a great Christmas. And I hope that our leaders spend a bit of time over Christmas looking into the future and realizing that we need to change the way we run our affairs. Appreciate the time. I'll to do it. Everyone, take care. Have a great Christmas. You too, Tom. All the best. Take care. All right, bye-bye. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, we'll talk about some of the changes to uh, federal taxes coming up on January the 1st. Speak with Jay Goldberg. He's the Interim Atlantic Director of the Canadian Taxpayers of Federation. Don't go away. Your voice in Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest conversation. If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open Line every day. Have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOCM. Welcome back. Let's go. Line number five. Say good morning to the interim director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation Atlantic is Jay Goldberg. Jay, you're on the air. Good morning. Good morning to you. Welcome to the show. Great to be with you. What are we talking about this morning? So what we're talking about this morning is the increases in uh, taxes and fees uh, that will be coming in at the federal level starting on January the 1st. There's a number of uh, increases in what uh, folks are going to have to pay. The bottom line is if you combine the Canada Pension Plan uh, increases, payroll tax hikes, as well as more uh, being paid toward employment insurance, if you earn $75,000 next year, you're going to have another, an extra $507 taken off of your paycheck. Yeah, and I think the threshold is even a bit lower than that. I think it's around 73000 for that additional federal payroll tax. The issue regarding payroll tax is going to cost individuals on the average about $347. Is that accurate? That's, I think that's what I read. Yep. yep, it's going to be about $347, and then you add in the EI and the CPP, and you get to over 500 bucks. The EI program, I mean, I know why it's there. It's a backstop if and when you are laid off or lose your job, but it's not necessarily working the way it's intended. Now, it was raided there some years ago by the federal government for a variety of other pet projects that were not related to job employment status. But EI, I think we've got to rejig how that works. What's your concern with the issue regarding CPP, uh, insurance contributions? Because that, for most, when we've changed the way the world has really operated, you know, gone are the days, for the most part, where you graduated high school or post 
secondary, worked for the same company for 35 years. He had a pretty good pension, and the CBP was a bit of a gravy or a bit of a bonus. Now, with the, you know, the gig economy and side hustles and people changing jobs much more frequently, I don't think we're going to see that type of retirement for individuals in place like, say, 30 years ago. So what are your general concerns, or simply the dollars and cents? Well, I mean, the dollars and cents certainly matter. So when you're talking about increasing costs uh, for those who are barely making ends meet by $133 next year, that's very difficult. Uh, and of course, it's been going up every year. So over the past four or five years, it's been over $500 increase if you just look at that differential. But in terms of the Canada Pension Plan, the actual return that uh, taxpayers are getting through the Canada Pension Plan is pretty much um, in every case less than uh, if workers had been able to keep that money, invest it themselves, uh, and then ultimately take that of the, out of their RRSP at the time of retirement. So um, the returns have actually been a lot better uh, for those who are investing money through RRSPs in the vast majority of cases than through the CPP. Now, obviously, the argument with the CPP uh, was that uh, you had politicians essentially saying, well, people won't save, they won't contribute to the RSP, and so we need to do a mandatory uh, takeoff of people's paychecks to essentially force them to save for retirement. I think that's the very wrong way to look at it. I think we have to have confidence in Canadians. I think we need to have conversations about retirement, absolutely. Um, but I certainly think that instead of increasing the cost, as has been happening over the past several years, there should be a much larger push to have people take the money that would have otherwise been taken off of their paychecks, invest it uh, so that they can put an RSP, take it out when they need it, uh, and get better returns. So ultimately, it's a question of who should be left with the uh, responsibility to do this. Are we responsible people who can save for our own retirement and keep the CPP where it is? Or do we need the government to take even more off of our paychecks for a smaller return in the end? So the return numbers, uh, so the fiscal year CPP is somewhere in May. I can't remember what the date is. The return was 1.2 or 3% last year, 10-year annualized return of 10%, so a lot less than I earn on my RRSP. But your contention that Canadians are responsible to save for their retirement, do you really think that? I don't think so. I mean, the reality is, just look at the debt load and debt servicing. For every dollar coming in the door, Canadians, on average, are spending a dollar eighty-three on servicing their debt. That kind of speaks to me a little bit of mismanagement of money and lack of foresight for years down the road in so-called rainy day funds and or retirement. Sure, and I think there's uh, various ways to further encourage people to invest in RSPs. There's certainly uh, uh, plans that you can have uh, that would... Um, for example, uh, if, if the federal government, uh, you know, uh, insisted that there was some amount of money that individuals set aside into their RSP, and if they can demonstrate that they have put that money, the equivalent, into an RSP, uh, then you could opt out of this uh, CPP increase. So, I mean, you could certainly come up with a system uh, whereby you could still have make sure individuals are investing for their retirement while at the same time allowing them to get better returns and have more creativity in terms of how they want to do that. Certainly, I think you can have a conversation about whether or not uh, you know you have to demonstrate that you're saving for retirement yourself if you're not doing it through increased CPB contributions. And I think that's a very important conversation to be had of 
of course we want people to have enough money to save for their retirement. But, you know, ultimately it is going to be, and it should be, individuals doing this. Uh, again, if the, you want to make sure that the government is overseeing the fact that people are saving for the retirement, there's a way to do that. But as you said, you know, with your own RSP savings and, and virtually everyone else, you're getting better returns. And so uh, we need to do it in a way that's going to allow individuals to save more for their retirement. Yeah, I think there's a couple of incentives that have been very encouraging and enticing for, for Canadians. The tax break I get when I invest in my own uh, registered uh, retirement savings plan. Also, the creation of the tax-free savings account, I think, has been a real boon for people who have a few bucks to set aside in that account. The, the whole myth about outstanding returns or CPP are really purposefully mischaracterized because when it's first created and you had the first uh, 10-year annualized rate of return analysis and it's, it's you know, somewhere like 35%, but then, of course, the contributing uh, period has changed and the amount of money has changed. The return has changed dramatically. I mean, 1.3%, I could just about get that in my savings account. So there are absolutely ways that we should you know, have a look at CPP. I think it's always going to be part of the Canadian landscape for a variety of reasons. Like a low-income earner for the vast majority of their professional career is going to need CPP uh, without question. It's still a pretty robust fund, not in the terms of return, but in terms of sustainability. So there's some, there's a lot to this conversation. Anything else you want to say this morning, Jay? Uh, the, the only last thing I would say is at the provincial level, I think taxpayers need to look out for a potential gas tax hike that they're going to see this year if the Fury government uh, doesn't act to extend that cut that's been in place for a year and a half now. Yeah, they said they were going to leave it in place for now, and I believe they committed to the fiscal year, but... Absolutely. As someone who uh, consumes gas, not individually, but in my machinery, uh, fair ball. I appreciate the time this morning, Jay. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. So, I mean, CPP initially <clears throat> was, you know, fantastic returns. But if you are born, God, I wish I had the dates. If you are born after 1960, and I don't think that's the, the specific date that's been used, but if you've been born after 1960, like me, the rate of return is probably more close to 3%. Now, in the last couple of years, it has dipped notably and noticeably. But, uh, yeah, I think we're still going to need a Canadian-fueled and funded pension plan. And that's me and you f uh, fueling it and funding it, me and you and our employers. Okay, let's keep rolling here. Let's go to line number one. Katie, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you? Doing okay. How about you? I'm all right. Good. Um, I'm a first-time caller. So I'm a little bit nervous. You take your time. Go right <laughs> ahead. I'm also calling about Tent City at the Colonial Grounds. Um, I'm a new mom, and I'm still on maternity leave. I spent a lot of time in Banner and Park growing up, and now I still spend a lot of time there with my baby and my friends and their babies. Um, I guess I'm just a regular person who started popping in down at Tent City because I had some extra time on maternity leave to bring coffee and food, to, to listen to people's stories, and to help folks with mundane stuff like filling out paperwork or navigating the system for income support and other supports. Um, I guess what I've witnessed in the months since I started helping out down there has been both heartbreaking and eye-opening to me. Um, you know, we can't all be experts in homelessness. I know I'm not. But I did want to call in in support of the residents down there because I know a lot of them won't call in on their own behalf. Um, I guess like there's a lot of different circumstances that lead people to stay at Tent City. And regardless of those circumstances, I think they all deserve access to safe long-term housing. I see a lot of myths being perpetuated by politicians and then in the media, such as homeless folks all being addicts and thus collateral damage. Um, 
And like I think that also paints a picture that makes us in the public think that the escalating police presence that keeps getting mentioned is warranted. And I don't think it is. Um, another thing I see down there is a lot of seniors coming through, and that kills me. I certainly would not want my parents to be living in a tent in a Newfoundland winter uh, in their 70s. You know, I, I heard you, I guess, mention with one of the other guests that long-term housing takes time. And I just want to push back on that a little bit. Like, long-term housing has been asked for for years. Like, there's been plenty of time. This isn't a time issue, in my opinion. It's an issue of homeless people being deprioritized over and over again. And I just, I think as a province, we should be doing better. Um, as a taxpayer, I, you know, I've worked in public service for a lot of years. I also have some questions about the money. Um, how much money is being spent on these short-term for-profit shelters? The figures I've seen are over a million dollars last five, sorry, over five million bucks last year. Three hundred dollars per person per night. That's nine thousand bucks for a person for a month. It's a lot more than my mortgage. Why aren't we putting that elsewhere? Just for clarification, my comment that housing takes time, because it just absolutely does. And I've long said yeah. that we've let, let this get to this point. So I'm not saying that we should have done better in years past. I've been talking about homelessness-related matters on this program for years. So as much as you push back, and I can accept that, the fact is, with the new focused attention on it, regardless of what anybody thinks about permanent solutions, they cannot happen overnight. That's the unfortunate reality. I will concede your point that governments have allowed this to be a bubbling and growing problem over years nationally and provincially and territorially but if we're going to have a firm commitment now to finding permanent solutions for those who are homeless unfortunately it's going to take some time um, I don't sure, know I no matter how you slice it yeah and I think you also kind of touched on you know there's different shelters and some are good some are bad um, I guess the deeper I get into this the more I re I've learned as you mentioned like there are no shelter standards uh, later this afternoon, I'm bringing cold medicine and food to a gentleman in his 70s who's been in the shelter for the last week uh, because he was too cold in a tent. And yesterday, his lunch was a single gas station submarine sandwich. That's what we're getting for $900,000 a month for him. It's not good enough from a money perspective, and it's not good enough from an ethical perspective because he deserves better. And, like, this is stuff that can be remedied quickly. It's a political will issue. Um, I guess I'll... Just to close out, like, like I said, I have a young baby. I continue to go down and help out down there because I hope he grows up in a community where we take care of our most vulnerable. Um, I'm not naive enough to believe that an announcement of a task force to study an issue that has known solutions is going to do anything. Uh, and I'm hoping others in our community feel the same. And if they do, they should phone Minister Abbott. He's on the task force, and he's also the landlord for the Colonial Building Grounds. And they should call Premier Fury's office and let them know. Um, they can Google for their phone numbers. That's what I do when I go to call them to demand change. Or people call me asking for their phone numbers. Uh, so <laughs> when you mention political will, I think that's right. But let's take that one step further. Even individuals have really changed how they view housing. For me, and I think for the vast majority of people listening to this program, or for everyone in the country, the largest piece of financial equity we're ever going to enjoy in our lifetime is the equity we find in our own home. And that's fine when we talk about, you know, preparing for your saving, or your retirement and downsizing, pocketing some of the money. But 
it's a political issue further than just the political parties and political ideology because now we use housing starts as a measure of economic uh, successes. So we can't have it both ways. I can't be fully reliant on the only piece of big equity I'll ever have is my home, but the government, I mean, that's where it's going to start. So your point on political will is right. 30 years ago, housing was a federal responsibility in part, and they were building federally funded uh, public sector homes, and now they moved away from that in full. The federal government completely changed their tune on housing and they allowed us to think about it as an investment versus a place to live. And now, when I talk about things that people are thinking are foolish or what have you, but I'm going to keep doing it because we just don't have the right approach in this country. And why wouldn't we, as a nation or as a province, just look at what happens elsewhere, the savings they've achieved with acknowledging the fact that poverty-related matters, the best foot forward that you can have as an individual to get back on track, to have some successes, to be gainfully, meanfully employed, to be safe and healthy... It starts with housing. It, it does. Yeah, Patty, I think you're dead on. Like, housing first is the right thing to do ethically and morally, but it also is it's the prudent thing to do from a financial taxpayer perspective uh, and to keep people out of emergency rooms when they don't need to be there and to keep police from showing up on site and, you know, wasting more taxpayer dollars that way, too. Um, so, I don't know. Hope to see some change in the new year and... I'll be thinking of everyone at Tent City over the holidays because they'll still be there. Yeah, last word is, you know, I got this reaction right away because I've mentioned Helsinki in the past, and so be it. I mean, it looks like they've got their uh, right approach, politically speaking, to housing. So someone says, you know, we just can't socialize every aspect of life here. The fact of the matter is not everybody in society is going to have to rely on some of these housing start programs like in Helsinki. The vast majority, as is the case today, are not homeless. So we're talking about a segment of the population through a variety of things. And I'll accept your point that we can't pretend, nor should we say, that every single person that's homeless is mentally unwell or has a substance abuse problem. There's people through different arenas and avenues and life circumstances find themselves homeless. So you're right. Not everyone has those complexities of need, even though some of them do. If you're saying, well, we can't be spending all this money because we're going to you know, spend ourselves broke, the savings that have been attributed to having people in housing because it reduces their interaction with social services, with the criminal justice system, with the healthcare system, all three of the most expensive things in this country. If we're just a bit more sensible and do the cost-benefit analysis, people in out of the cold and somewhere safe and somewhere healthy has a savings. It has an upside societally and morally, but it's also financially extremely wise. Why? Because it's working. And we don't accept it because we've got a lot of people on a certain part of the political spectrum saying, you know, there are, everyone's Margaret Thatcher all of a sudden. You know, you're going to run out of other people's money. But at some point, there's such a thing as getting a return. You know, if we focus on the social determinants of health, for instance, if we get that right, then we won't be spending $4 billion for terrible health care outcomes. So anyway, I appreciate you making time for the show. It. Pardon me? You nailed it. I said, I think you nailed it, Patty. Thanks for letting me call in. I appreciate your time. Stay in touch. Thanks. Okay, bye-bye. Yeah, I mean, not every spend is created equal, right? You know, you'll hear governments that they'll characterize one bit of money going out as an investment. And, you know, the general public, for the most part, will say, look, none of the governments, governments aren't investing money. Governments are spending money. But some spends are wiser than others. Some spends will see real pragmatic positive changes for individuals. Some spends may indeed see long-term change of attitude, long-term potential savings, because not every spend is created equally in my pocketbook, in my family, or your family, or yes, municipal, provincial, and federal governments. Let's take a break. We'll go back. Bob wants to talk about equalization. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Uh, Let's go. Line number two. Bob, you're on the air. Yes, 
uh, Patty, I was wondering why about now, uh, how come we're qualifying for equalization? Did you ever wonder what's going on there? I talked about it extensively off the top of the show. Yeah, that's what inspired me to come, Patty. You and I were talking about this before, how Quebec don't declare their profits. That was back in the days when you were saying they were the boogeyman, making fun. No, I'm not going to let you put words in my mouth today, Bob. That's one thing that is not happening today. Okay, I'm sorry, Patty. I won't do it anymore, anyway. Uh, The group, uh, you know what must have happened there, Patty? uh, And I'll put more term out now, but um, they're coming out of my own. I was wondering, uh, the group negotiating the Upper Churchill must have come across why Quebec, the way Quebec is manipulating the Upper equalization in regards to the upper turf field. They must have had to come across that because that's what they'd be digging into, wouldn't they? Well, I have no earthly idea what they found out. We haven't heard a single word from them about the status of negotiations, what's on the table. But my comments on Quebec's uh, equalization part is just based on, on the facts, not what the uh, that committee has found out. So I tried to be as clear as I could about what I think about Quebec equalization and the convoluted formula in which they, you know, they manipulated because they just talk about fiscal capacity of new, uh, pardon me, Quebec Hydro, when in fact what they do is they simply sell the power at a, a cut rate to their residents, and so consequently they're not making as much money as they could or should be if they were charging market rates. So, yeah, I think that's long been understood, hasn't it? Yeah, but I think the whole point is now that uh, why we qualified for equalization all of a sudden. Couldn't you, wouldn't you, would it be a leap to tie it into them negotiating? Maybe they're doing their job right, you know? I'm uh, sorry, I, I, I can't square that circle. You think that the negotiations that are currently just ongoing and not concluded, and we don't even know what they're talking about, do you think that's got a direct relationship with why we're all of a sudden, through the formula that's been established, all of a sudden qualifying for equalization payments? Yes, I do. And uh, that's why I call Patty. Uh, you know, uh, we're, we're sort of going to be celebrating our anniversary and uh, uh, very soon, and so we could be celebrating it instead of mourning it as we are now. But uh, you know, how do we get out from under Quebec? We loan those three uh, uh, power sites in uh, in another eighteen years. And we don't need the power lines going to uh, New England now. We own 66% of the upper church. Yeah, Hydro-Quebec does not lose their equity stake in 2041. What? Say again? Hydro-Quebec does not lose their equity stake at the upper Churchill in 2041. Didn't say they do, Patty. Well, you said we take over. That's, but that's not the, the the formula. The percentage for who has ownership in the Upper Church in 2041 doesn't change. No, but if we got 66 percent, don't that make us the owner? Or the controlling, having the controlling interest in us. But the per- the percentage issue of ownership has had very little to do with it. It's the fact that they had a locked in price per kilowatt hour for the power. So even if they owned one percent, the fact is they buy a lot of the power for what is it, zero point two cents per kilowatt hour. So that's the that's the problem. That contract is up then, isn't it? It is. So that's uh, that's not why I mention that if it's up then is. Where do we stand then on the Upper Churchill? We own 66%, and that's, and uh, we don't, uh, you know, and that's all there is to it, isn't it? 
and uh, you know we can uh, negotiate with someone else. We we can use hydrolysis to uh, Quebec got a, a train now going on uh, hydrolysis. Where are they getting the power for that? I don't know. Fifteen percent of Hydro Quebec's portfolio is the Upper Churchill. Yeah, and uh, I don't even know. You said that when last time we were talking that they signed a contract with the New England states for 25 years. How can they do that really legally when they won't own it after uh, in another 18 years? Yeah, but they have enough power to satisfy that contract because 85% of their portfolio is not the Upper Churchill. Oh, that much. Yeah, uh, there's a couple of things I wanted to say. Yeah, uh, I, know, I, know. I had it written down here somewhere. You know, it's, 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 can we ever do right by ourselves regarding the upper church? You know, when we have, when they come to a, an agreement, will we have a referendum? I mean, those people that are negotiating might be great negotiators, and I think they're responsible now for this equalization uh, for Newfoundland. I mean, you know, we could uh, we, we could have a referendum at that time, and then Newfoundland people have to decide, right? They decided apparently on uh, getting into that we sold out for uh, family loans, baby loans, and uh, some people say, uh, uh, Greg Malone say we 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 had the winning, uh, we had more than fifty percent for responsible government. And uh, we got, uh, you know, manipulated. I wouldn't doubt there's no trouble to manipulate someone in that instance. But if we're ever going to uh, get get our rights, can, uh, no, uh, Ottawa don't want uh, to, uh, to, uh, Newfoundland to offend Quebec. You can see now, Ottawa would have to be the one to decide we get the, the, this uh, equalization adjustment. And why would they step in there right now, Petty? You know, you want to be... I'm trying not to say anything. Uh, but you want that not to be too bright to, to, to not see that, right? Drum, paint me a picture then, Bob. I know you think I'm stunned, which is fine, but I'm a little oh, bit tired no, too. Petty, so, paint me a picture. Give me, some, give me some examples, uh, you know, specifics as to why you think this negotiation has anything to do with an all long-standing equalization formula where our fiscal inputs are put in and they spit out $214 million. Just exactly what do, you, what do you think is happening? It might be. I don't know, but I'm not 100% sure what you're talking about. Well, it's the timing. The way we just became eligible for equalization and it's tied in with uh, Quebec, uh, you know, it's tied in with uh, the negotiations on the Upper Churchill. Quebec are negotiating that, manipulating uh, equalization. So is it a real stretch to think that now that's coming up now that's been uh, brought to light, all these things as they're negotiating? If they're, a good, if they're really a qualified group, that, that would be coming to light, wouldn't it? It would, but neither Newfoundland or Labrador nor Quebec have any control of the equalization formula. No, Quebec and uh, Ottawa has, and that's, that's the point too, isn't it? Ottawa did that to keep us from making too much noise about about what Quebec is doing. Uh, and, uh, you know, 
that would have to be adjusted for Quebec, and they don't want to antagonize Quebec. So Ottawa gave us equalization as buying us off. That's my opinion, buddy. Sure, and if anyone... uh, Look, if we have people sitting in the legislature that can be bought off for $214 million in equalization payments, then we've got 40 people who don't belong in there. I mean, we're talking about the lowest equalization payment in the country, the first one we've had since 2008. It's not going to solve or fix anything. Of course, $215 million is nothing to sneeze at, but we're also talking about a $9 billion budget. We were looking for it before, Patty, and we were in the same situation. We were looking for a change to the formula because the numbers that are input don't change. It's a formula issue. Healthcare transfers are based on population. Equalization is a formula. So unless the formula changes, nothing changes because natural resources, wealth, taxation, all of those things are just firm numbers. So doesn't matter if we want to change those numbers. It's the formula that counts. Yeah, it's the timing that's uh, making me suspicious, Patty. I mean, don't hurt to be suspicious there and, and you know, uh, line up all the dots, right? I appreciate the time, Bob. The fact that we're doing it now, it makes me suspicious. And I wonder why it wouldn't make you suspicious, Patty. Because this date for equalization updates is predictable. And the negotiations, we don't even know what's being discussed. So, and like I said, this for Quebec, it's in large part all about them subsidizing rates for their electricity customers. If they increase it to market rates, which is about four cents, comparable to the city of Toronto, their equalization payment goes from 13.1 to 5.1. $1 billion. That's a huge drop simply by charging the market rate on, on electricity. Uh, I hope you have a nice Christmas, Bob. Anything else before we go? No, I need to say goodbye and thanks. Take care. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye. Okay, let's take a break. When we come back, Sean wants to talk about the gas tax. Cindy wants to talk about housing, and then we're going to talk to you about whatever's on your mind. Don't go away. Nutrition, exercise, keeping the cold at bay. Whatever keeps you feeling great, the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Uh, Let's go to line number three. Sean, you're on the air. Patty, how are you doing today? Doing okay, thanks. How about you? Oh, very good. Thank you. Listen, I want to talk about uh, all our road taxes. I mean, we're taxed a bit on it uh, when we buy gas or anything. Yet every shoulder in the Conception Bay North, uh, like at Conception Bay Highway, has got washouts. Uh, you, it's not safe to pull in if an ambulance is coming behind you. I saw a five-ton box truck, uh, you know, uh, pull in because he broke down and ended up here in the front bumper of his truck. Now, off a five-ton, what would that do to occur? Tear it up worse. You know, oh, it's ridiculous. Uh, I mean... There's no MHA after talking about it yet that I heard. Only Helen Conway Ottenheimer. She's been talking about her district. Pam Parsons in her area is really bad. She don't bring it up in the house. You know, it's ridiculous. Uh, all, all Fury is is a puppet for uh, that thing up in Ottawa, and, I mean, that's not even worth talking about. You know, it's ridiculous what's, what's happening. So <clears throat> when it comes to road work... So the gas tax was basically created to do exactly that, work on the roads, the shoulders, the guardrails, the bridges. And for years, you know, we'd taken way more gas taxes than we would spend on road work. You know, just for round numbers, say you bring in $360 million and spend about $86 million on roads. So there was always surplus because the gas tax is basically just in the government coffers. They do as they see fit. Now, as it pertains to road work in the most recent budget, it's the biggest amount of money that I can ever remember this province spending on on roads. And I think it was somewhere like, 
what, $200 million? They refer to it as unprecedented, which I think is fair because it is. So what's the relationship, you think, between the roads and the provincial and federal liberals, just so I have a better understanding? Well, I mean, they're not doing nothing with the money they're taking from us. I mean, they're not, you know, the federal government is uh, supposed to take care of the roads as well. The Veterans Highway, which has got enough challenges on its own, I mean, that's a 100-kilometre zone. And here, if you go to pull off, you're taking your life in your own hands. It's really gone. Paddy, I don't know if you've been on the Veterans lately, but uh, going towards Carbonier, say, from Bay Roberts or Mackensons. A few months ago, yeah. yeah. Did you see the washouts on that? That's brutal. It is. I mean, how can you pull over if an ambulance is coming? There's Especially plen- at night or, or if there's a dust of snow. Yeah, there's plenty of places where it's impossible to pull over safely. It is. And I just won't do it. The ambulance have to go around. You know, it's not safe. It's really not safe. And it's not fair for the government. They never touched the road since the washouts last year. And, uh, you know, all the shoulders. They never put uh, one bit of gravel in it. They go and put a pile on it, and then that's blown away. You know, what's the good of that? You know, there's nothing done. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Like, uh, I have no business and no interest in defending anything that the government does. But, of course, if we looked at every single stretch of highway, every single stretch of guardrail, every single bridge in this province that absolutely needs work done today and this paving season or this road work season, they're not all going to get attended to. Uh, Like I said, I drove that stretch of highway about, I don't know, three months ago. So how long has that been in the condition it is? Well, I mean, uh, when was it we had the heavy rain and all the washouts last fall? It's like it said sting. I mean, that's over a year. Yeah, fair enough. You know, and it's ridiculous. Why don't the transportation minister get on with you and explain, if they only go and do the washouts, fix the washouts, you know, that'd be a help. They don't need to shoulder the whole road. Do the really bad washouts. Yeah, fair enough. And I guess we've gone to that concept of, and I think it's been helpful for all of us, the early tendering and what have you just makes sense so that we can get the bids in and the uh, companies that win the bids can get geared up with manpower and equipment and otherwise and execute it. But you're right. Look, I mean, even closer to where I live, down on Marine Lab Drive, I mean, there's a problem there with the washout, and it hasn't been fixed. So, Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I can't wait for the next election for this government to go because I know they will be gone. No doubt. The people are fed up with them. Do you think things will change in the world of road work, regardless of who's in government? Yes, I do. Okay. Yes, I do. I saw it before. I saw it before. And I mean, since this government is in, they don't care about public safety at all. Why don't this transportation minister do something about it? That's what his job is. It's ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, they're certainly spending more money than ever before on the roads, but I don't think we're ever going to get the roads perfect here. Now, there has been accusations in the past of the politics of road work, right? You know, if you're in the seat of the government, your district got paved more uh, extensively than others. You know, That sometimes I think has borne out to be relatively accurate. But, you know, getting the roads right with the... I wonder what the total kilometers of roads that we have in the province are. That'd be interesting when you compare it to the numbers of people that live here. I'm sure that number's out there somewhere. I'll see if I can find it. Oh, it is. Yeah. 
And I'm sure the government got it, but they're not going to release it because it makes them look like fools again. I'll, I'll find it. I don't, I don't care who wants it released or not, but I can get that number. <laughs> That's why I called you, Paddy. I know you will find it. You know, find out something, you know, about these roads. If they could just fix the washout. I mean, wait until the snow comes and the, these roads are covered in snow. You know, when all the, all the shoulders are buried in snow. Someone pulls in offside the road, they, they won't be able to see it, and here they're down in the trench. Let's hope not. Uh, Sean, I appreciate the time. Uh, thanks for making time for the programme, and Merry Christmas to you and yours. You too, Paddy. Thank thanks. you. All the best. Bye-bye. Merry Christmas. Uh, Merry Christmas to you. Uh, let's take a break. Cindy, you're next. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Cindy, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you? Doing okay. How about you? Not not so good, Patty. Patty, I spoke to you back in February when uh, my son's spouse passed away. Suddenly he was thrown to the streets. Well, I spoke to Mr. John Abbott. He did absolutely nothing after he was saying he would get our stuff and he'd get back to me. Never did hear back from him. I'm dealing with uh, some people on the streets right now. Um, one had their uh, was stabbed and had a main artery in the neck severed. Lucky to be alive. That happened in their sleep. Uh, the hospital said that they would not be discharged to the streets while they were thrown to the streets. The other person that's they're hanged together. Um, is in hospital and due to be released with nowhere to go. I spoke to Mr. Rabbit again. He's willing to help one and not the other. This is totally pathetic. The housing line, he said to call the other person to call the housing line. Well, listen, we've sat with these people, myself and other people, with them on the phone to the housing line. The housing line would take information, ask them to send stuff in. They sent it in to tell them they would call them back. They would not get a call back. The first night, the one person with the severed main artery in the neck uh, went, called them when they got out of the hospital. They were sent to um, a, a place that's open with 30 or 40 other beds side by side. How could they expect this person to go into a situation like that after just being released of a stabbing in their sleep? Obviously, there's going to be paranoia and fear and everything come from it. And he's not willing to do a thing to help. Keeps telling me, call the housing line. Well, we've done that. But the other person can call him and get a place. Yeah, the priority list is a bit confusing when it comes to housing. So what specifically are you asking to be done? For these two people to be taken off the street. So you're asking for... medical, Both of them with severe medical problems. So you're looking for police intervention or healthcare intervention? I'm looking for a roof over their heads. Instead of them going back to the street and trying to survive. One, one, he'll help the other. He won't ask them why he'll help one and not the other. You can ask Mr. Abbott himself why he's willing to help one and not the other. And he's a liar because he told me he's been working with that person yesterday and last night. No, he has not. He definitely has not. I understand where you're coming from, but let me add this to the pile. 
do we think it would be overall beneficial to people of the province if politicians had direct influence on who got a spot in Newfoundland Labrador Housing, as opposed to them being responsible for, you know, oversight, management, investment, monitoring, all the rest of it? Because I've, I'm always curious as to what we think is in our collective best interest. I don't think I want a politician determining who gets uh, where I am on the surgical list. I don't think I really want them involved in my workers' compensation claim. I want them involved in the legislation, right? But they're involved in everything, Patty. They do. They are the ones involved in everything. They're the ones to say yay or nay. Like, he he, he made me promises that he never followed through. There was ashes thrown in the garbage belonging to family members. Like, seriously? Uh, His IDs, everything else they had to do was look at his ID and see that, yep, that's him, okay, you can have your stuff. But no. The people that worked for housing got it, what the garbage didn't get. Like, it's not right. It's a vicious circle here, and you can't get help. You can beg and plead. We've been down to Tent City. We've talked to the people at Tent City. You can beg and plead all you want. As far as I'm concerned, Jim Din is doing one heck of a job trying to help people, but he needs more of them on board to help him help them. He can't do it on his own. Well, of course you can't. And there's a, a lot to that issue regarding housing and homelessness. And I think the Newfoundland Labrador Housing Corporation conversation is a little bit of its own maddening file. You know, there's been lots of quote-unquote misspeaks about the number of units that have been built, the number of units that have been boarded up, and the progress was trying to get them renovated and repaired. I think in that world, you know, not suggesting that any further expansion of the public services is in our best interest, but if we had more staff that were able to do the ongoing maintenance and try to reduce the number of units that are left boarded up, I think that would probably be better when we talk about vacancy rates, affordability, accessibility, the wait list, of which are some, what, did I read the other day? some 2,900 people on the wait list for Newfoundland Labrador housing, which is a whopping big number. Well, yeah, especially when people are on it for five and six years and don't even get a call. But it don't make sense. Why Why are other people put up in hotels and other people are left to the streets? It's not fair, Patty. There's plenty of people happens. in hotels being uh, the bill being footed by the province. Pardon? Uh, there's plenty of people in hotels that are being paid for by the province. Yes, I know that. And I asked them when they said, uh, no, they're they're full. If you get cold, they can go to the warming center. I said, what happened to the hotels? Two weeks ago, they said they, that when all the shelters are full, they'll resort to a hotel. But now you're telling me if they get cold, that they, they can go down to the warming center? That's pathetic. Newfoundland needs to take back Newfoundland. Newfoundland is gone. Like everything is gone over the because of the past couple of years with this COVID. Newfoundland, it's time we take back Newfoundland and be the people we always were. The friendliness is not out there anymore. Nothing. It's gone. It's an unfortunate way to view what's happening, but of course your opinion and what you see is yours and is not for me to try to change it. Uh, I appreciate the time, Cindy. Hope you're doing okay. So, uh, like, is there anywhere else you can say to turn to or to do? I wish I could. If there were switches I could flip and get this resolved, I would be more than happy to do it. But I'm really not sure. Uh, I can give it some additional thought and make a couple of phone calls to see if I can point you in a different or a better direction. And if I can, I will. Okay, because it's time that they do something. Like, this is not fair. This is not right. Thank you, Cindy.
Thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. All right, before we get to the news, a quick response to Barry Penton's comments regarding the 2,700 deficiencies found at the Western Memorial Regional Hospital is the Liberal member for Corner Brook. That's Jerry Byrne, Minister of Immigration, responsible. Of course, uh, Minister Byrne, you're on the air. Thanks very much, Patty, for having me on. Listen, it's... uh, We take a a certain amount of celebration in the fact that for after almost now 20 years of um, a lot of chat, a lot of uh, back and forth, we are having a hospital, a brand new 600,000 square foot medical facility in Corner Brook. So I just want to reply to to, uh, Barry Patton's criticisms. Um, the source of the information that Barry used about the deficiencies, I think I should lead off the top by saying, this is what the Premier and I uh, revealed or, or discussed at the ceremony taking possession. We acknowledged that there were still working on deficiencies. That's a normal process. And in fact, the fact that the deficiencies and those deficiencies being everything from needing to cock a uh, light fixture uh, or a switch plate or some scuffs on the floor or some ceiling tile that needs to be replaced, a wide, wide gamut of deficiencies. Um, And, you know, with that sinister word deficiency, these are things that are normal to a construction process of a 600,000 square foot, $500 million plus building. Are you suggesting this is the norm? Yeah, no, this is, this is what happens when you, uh, when you build that kind of a building. You identify anything that, uh, that needs to be fixed. So there's no legal issues after the fact as to where and how it happened. The fact that they're cataloged now is very, very helpful because, of course, the the building operator has the responsibility for the next 30 years to keep that building in great shape, not the government, which is one of the great blessings, Patty, of the uh, P3 model. This is from uh, a person who worked on the long-term care facilities in Central and the Cornerbrook Hospital. He says, I've worked on both types of projects, the P3 and the government-funded projects. On the P3, you would hardly ever see an inspector, but on the government-funded projects, you would see inspectors for all trades almost every day. I don't have the answer why that's the way, but I'm just speaking from my perspective. I just know that the deficiencies are a lot lower on the government-funded projects. I think they should go back to the old way of doing business. Your comments. Yeah, I don't don't think that individual has it right, to be honest with you, because as I kept track as the MHA for Corner Brook, as I kept track of this project at a distance, but still keeping track, uh, there were government inspections, much to the chagrin of the uh, of the principal operators and the subcontractors. There were regular. Which where do you think the deficiencies came from, or the marking of the deficiencies? They came from inspections by government. They didn't come forward from the company itself necessarily. They came forward from a whole bunch of different sources, showing that the company itself worked collaboratively with the government, with the Department of Transportation Infrastructure, to say, listen, this is what we're still working on. This is what we got to do. We're not hiding it. We are going to do it because we're still responsible for it in the long run. This is why the Premier and I actually made specific notes 
of all of this when we uh, took the keys to the building that there was still work underway and it was work that is very very normal and the fact that it's still underway it's still cataloged it's still noted i think people should take a certain amount of satisfaction of that and that uh, we are not taking over a, a building with what is known as the uh, tail light warranty as soon as the tail light of the v- of the uh, of the contractor passes out of view so goes the warranty this is a 30 year warranty we have on this building that the contractor is responsible for. So, you know, listen, opposition for opposition say, I, I get it, but let's be very clear about one last thing. The P3 model was allegedly what the PCs were going to use all along for the long-term care for Cornerbrook, for the hospital for Cornerbrook, and for everything else. The only difference is they advocated and we're going to use private sector health care staff in the long-term care facility in Cornerbrook. We said absolutely not. And so, while Mr. Petten may argue that uh, he's not so certain anymore about P3s, that's what they told us for a decade they were going to use. Yeah, that, that's, we just that's the partisanship of it all. And I don't necessarily yeah. care a whole lot about that. But when we even looked at the P3s for the long-term care facilities, it came with a variety of complicating factors. And it was all about the timing and the frequency of inspections. Because when they did the final inspection, they had to retool entire operating systems. So that's not normal. It's quite simply not. I mean, I have not been involved in building 6,000 square foot hospitals, but I've been involved in enough to know that retooling and reworking entire systems upon final inspection means that some of the rough-in inspections were either done by incompetent people or weren't done at all. Well, I'm not so sure that was the case because the inspections resulted in the uh, in the finding of the uh, of the of the deficiencies and therefore the correction. So the point being is that if you have a tail a tail light warranty, does the problem get fixed or does it linger? And I think what you're celebrating, what you're saying out loud right now is that because the deficiencies and the inspections occurred, the deficiencies were found, the problem was fixed. But that's always going to be the Which case, Minister really Byrne. What the, what's the, that's the most important thing, isn't it? Well, not really, because final inspections are absolutely standard practice. I mean, that's not any yeah. revelation coming due because of a P3. And the complications there were residents who could have occupied a bed in a long-term care facility were in a bed in a hospital, by and large. You now, some of them could have been at home, but some of them were certainly in the hospital. And so we talk about things like surgical backlogs, what have you. Some of that was a contributing factor. I mean, it's just indisputable, and that's not uh, Tory or Liberal or NDP or nothing. They're just numbers. So, you know, getting it right is one thing. And then you say, you know, like 30 years of keeping that building perfect, I think it was the word you used. Supposing the government had to fund it through a traditional RFP, it would have been incumbent on the government to keep it perfect. So regardless of who's operating or managing that building as a hospital or any other piece of public infrastructure, whoever's responsible, including the government, they should be keeping things perfect. So that's not a real upside because yeah, of the no, P3, you're is it? That's a key point there, Patty, is as the builder builds, it really is in their best interest because they have the liability, they have the responsibility for the next 30 years. If the government builds it with a traditional design-build uh, method, then the builder builds after a year the builder walks away, and the government then is responsible for anything that may or may not have been in place or found or any deficiencies. This is the key point to all of this, is that there's a natural discipline that's built into this particular model 
that it's not in the best interest of the builder to ever have a deficiencies because by hook or by crook, no matter what they may or may not want to do, they're going to have to fix it at their expense. And that is the blessing of the P3 model. And that's one of the reasons why, in many respects, the Cornerbrook Hospital, and I say this with a little bit of my tongue in my cheek, but it was over-engineered. Instead of going with, say, two panes of glass on the window, on certain windows, certain exterior-facing windows with, you know, high-volume windows, they, the builder said, no, to lower the cost of the heating and to make it more efficient, we're going with three panes of glass. But that was a choice that they took. That's what they pay, you know, that's what they put into their into that building and that's what they have to maintain so the bottom line here for me is that since there are deficiencies that are aware of that are most of which are very very relatively minor in scale but that doesn't distract from the fact that they're that they need to be fixed they were discovered they're being fixed and the bottom line is that there's no tail light warranty here. And regardless of the model, the final inspection would identify deficiencies which would have to be uh, uh, attended to and nothing changes based on the modeling issue regarding identification of any deficiencies that are in place but just they get fixed they will get fixed and when we talk about triple pane windows energy efficiency upon engineering design my goodness hopefully in the traditional model that that government used to rely on that would have been attended to because if not then we've got a bigger problem than we already think we have Uh, i appreciate the time minister Byrne. thanks for the call anything else very quickly because i'm late for the news no, awesome. Just there was a mill fire. I think there may be some speculation as to we've had some issues with the Cornerbrook pulp and paper mill. There was a, uh, a mill fire in the number two machine. Uh, been in contact with the company. They do not think there. Well, there's some time that will be required for repairs. Uh, they do not think that it's a uh, by any means or a standard a catastrophic uh, situation. I appreciate the, the time of the update. We'll be back in operation soon. Terrific. Okay. Thank you. God bless you and Merry Christmas to you, Patty. Merry God Christmas to you too, Minister Byrne. Thank you. Bye bye. All right, let's go ahead and take a break for that newscast. When we come back, plenty of time for you. Don't go away. Join Greg Smith weeknights at 545 as he chats with local musicians about life, inspiration shows, and new music. Tune into Soundcheck, your backstage pass to the local music scene on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Daniel, you're on the air. Uh, good morning, sir. How are you? Doing okay. How about you? Oh, good, good. Listen, uh, Mr. Daly, the reason why I'm calling in, I was talking to a couple of relatives right in uh, Alberta and uh, Nova Scotia, and uh, when they turn 66 years old, they get a check for $5,000 from the government. Uh, would you know anything about that? No. A check from the provincial government? Uh, they didn't say the provincial, just uh, from the from the OAS they get it from when they turn 66 years old. Nova Scotia and Alberta is only two on north so far. I've never heard anything about a bonus check at a certain age from old age security. Okay, sir. Uh, well, maybe if uh, one of you know, maybe one of your listeners, maybe one of those provinces would probably know. Maybe they could call in sometime. Sure, and I wish they would, because I'm not sure how that works. Because old age security is a federal pot of money, a federal program. So, 
I don't think the federal government cuts checks for one province versus another when we talk about OAS. The big concern many people have with old age security is that, you know, when the government increased it by a 10, by 10%, it was only for folks over the age of 75. And it's all based on, you know, consumer price index. So the benefits are increasing about a percent January to March. The increase this year, I think, in the second quarter was about 3.5%. And the real frustration is that, you know, the price of a loaf of bread and a two liter of milk and a stick of butter is the same if you're 67 or 77. So that's most of the concerns I've heard on OAS. But I am not familiar with a $5,000 bonus check at 66. I really don't know. But I'll try to find out. Yeah, no, but uh, this was for Alberta and Nova Scotia that I know so far because I was talking to relatives there and, and they confirmed it, like. Yeah, that's a strange one. Um, yeah. Just let me have a very quick look here. Mm-hmm. Uh, when turning 66, Alberta. Alberta Seniors Benefit. Okay, so Seniors Benefit. No, this is a monthly payment. Uh yeah, I'll have to dig in a little clearer because I don't know about one-time payments. Oh, here you go. So this summer's one-time payment of 500 Oh, so it's a one-time issue, and it was $500 to mm-hmm. support older seniors with higher expenses. Da, 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 da. Yeah, that was a one-time only, and that was from the federal government. I know about that $500, but I don't see any reference in Alberta to one-time payments for seniors, but I'll have another quick dig during this upcoming break. Yeah, it was also Nova Scotia, too. Yeah, no, I heard that part. I'll have a look. Okay, then. Thank you, sir. Thanks, Daniel. Have a nice day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yeah, those one-time payment checks, and that's what they were, one-time payment, and that was $500. Uh, For those who are eligible for the old age security pension, that was back in 2021, I'm pretty sure, if I remember correctly. But if you're listening from Nova Scotia or Alberta this morning and can tell me or fill in the blanks about if there's such a thing as a $5,000 bonus check upon the uh, turning the age of 66, I'd appreciate the information. Let's check on Twitter, see if anyone there knows. Uh, we're also taking your emails. It's openline.faocm.com. When we come back, let's have a great remainder of the program that requires you in the queue. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Well, we're hoping for some continued cold days on the province's west coast so they can start making snow for the skiers and the snowboarders that are enjoy the slopes and some après ski at Marble Mountain. Join us online number two is the general manager at Marble, and that's Richard Wells. Good morning, Richard. You're on the air. Excellent. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Happy to have you on the show. Love Marble. I'll get that out of the way right off the bat. So this year, it's going to cost a little bit more, but I think it's going to be important for the ease of lineups to get on the lifts that the Black Mariah is back in play for the first time in year. So that means three active lifts. Am I right? Yeah, correct. Uh, Happy to say my Achilles heel of five years has been repaired. Uh, We brought the Black Mariah back and uh, eager to bring uh, all of our loyal patrons onto that uh, chairlift that we have not had for a couple seasons, for sure. You could sure feel the difference in lining up for a lift without the Black Mariah there, so I think that's great news for those who are (laughs) going to take on the hill, but it's going to cost a little bit more this year. How have the prices changed? Uh, Correct. So early bird pricing is on sale right now. Uh, Those from recent years have gone up approximately $100. Uh, There's various categories there. So, uh, you know, the reasonel for uh, increase behind the scenes there. Uh, So also day lift tickets have increased between $5 and $10 as well. Uh, But the main reason for that certainly is, uh, you know, the revival of the chair. We've got a new groomer this season that we're very proud of. Uh, Lots of new employees, uh, you know, are going to have a new wage this season to work underneath. Uh, We've got three new trails developed on the mountain as well, uh, so bringing our total to 45. 
uh, you know, cost of goods, infrastructure, insurance, all of those certainly thrown into that melting pot. But uh, we're recognizing, you know, the need to uh, to raise prices just uh, very minor, and uh, that'll help us out uh, in the long run. So the three new trails, what kind of level of difficulty are they? Well, sadly, Marble Mountain is mainly advanced terrain. Uh, so I will say that uh, two of the uh, the three, let's say, uh, are more in the intermediate advanced category. And then we've got another one down below that we partnered with the Alpine uh, program. And we've got a skier border cross race course developed. So while it doesn't necessarily have a name, uh, it's on the lower portion of the mountain. And that one will be more specific to, you know, entry level racing students and uh, we're really excited because it actually mirrors the last Canada Games course, uh, similar to that race style. So uh, we've also got another one that we uh, we cut out as well. We were able to get a uh, excavator uh, this season, so we put a mulching device on the end of it, and uh, that became our brush cutting device. So we knocked down a few extra trees and added a few more runs, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Now marble does indeed have some steeps. You know, it's not that high in elevation necessarily, but even some of the blue. Uh, uh, labeled runs like Bata Vista that can be kind of pretty challenging on a couple of turns too so you know some of the steeps are fun for people who are you know advanced enough to take them on on their on the planks or on their snowboard so I'm looking forward to getting out through this year when it comes to how many cold days in a row you need to really have an adequate shot of making snow paint us a picture of what you need to see in the forecast Wow, great question. Uh, Snowmaking at sea level is an art or science, and, uh, you know, we're no different here in western Newfoundland at sea level. Uh, So we need consecutive days of cold temperatures, uh, at least minus four. The colder, the better. Uh, wet bulb temperatures has a massive uh, hindrance on on what we can produce and uh, humidity of course wind currents uh, more often than not when we uh, start up our cannons uh, you know if there's a strong wind uh, it'll deposit it up in Pasadena so uh, we've got to be very careful for sure uh, we have an aging infrastructure here at the mountain as well a lot of the snowmaking was uh, purchased or installed back in the 80s and 90s when historically marble would see you know 16 and 20 feet annually so uh certainly global warming is changing and uh you know trends in the industry are uh not allowing us to open as uh optimal uh, as as what we would hope but uh you know we're we're at the mercy of mother nature right now so uh let it snow that's what i'm asking for for christmas richard when we talk about year-round offerings i know there's been a lot of work done special events brought to the hill uh during the summer months just talk about not only how important that is because you know the government tried to offload marble mountain and the $1 million subsidy. So talk about some of the work you're doing to try to expand the offerings, whether it be during the winter season and or the shoulder seasons if you're a skier. Well, no kidding. Uh, we recognize the need to get to four-season concept. Uh, proud to say this summer we put almost 2,000 people on our summer chairlift. Uh, so we had a scenic uh, chairlift uh, ride all summer long, well, basically from August till the end of April or uh, October. Uh, and yeah, like I said, we put almost 2,000 people up there. So we had uh, several bands play at the base area. We had an outdoor stage. Uh, up above, we installed a walking trail with a uh, iconic viewing platform so that you could see uh, out the Bay of Islands and, and into the Humber Valley. 
so yeah, we're again we're recognizing the need to get to a four season resort. Uh, we dabbled a little bit in mountain biking this season. We purchased some bikes and installed some low level trails down at the base area for uh, for families to use and whatnot. And uh, fingers crossed that you know this time next year we'll uh, be pushing that concept even further. And uh, you know we're targeting trails down from the top of our mountain uh, this time next year. So uh, fingers crossed uh, everything uh, works in our favor that we'll have. Uh, lift access downhill mountain biking uh, in in the very near future at Marble. This is off the hill, but in the chalet. So sometimes when you've had a long day of skiing, you'd hope to be able to sit around for a bit of an extended amount of time to enjoy the apres skiing. For some, that's better than skiing. So (laughs) any talk about extending those hours after the the, uh, lifts close? Well, uh, we let customers dictate that. Uh, Early January for us uh, is often hit or miss. you know, if there's people in our building, we're not shutting down by any means. Okay. Uh, maybe years and years ago, uh, that philosophy might have been slightly different with the management style. But uh, I can assure you, if there's people in the building, we're ready to party. Yeah, because there's a lot of fun to be had there. So I guess this is a bit of a silly question because the forecast being so unpredictable. But is there a target? You know, optimally, you look to be out for the Christmas holidays. That's not going to happen. But is there a target where it makes things manageable, financially speaking, for the hill to be open and a target day for it to close? because I know you have zero control over that stuff, but obviously when you do the operational expense reports, you've got some optimal dates in mind. What would they be? So looking at trends historically in recent years, uh, I feel that we're going to be targeting, you know, the first or second week of January here now. Unfortunately, looking out at uh, my window, we've got sideways rain and green grass at the moment. So, you know, start to finish, it takes about three weeks uh, for me to tackle upper mountain, higher terrain, and then connect uh, down to the bottom. We've seen in recent years that people are not coming for the lower mountain Newfie bullet only. Uh, so for us, we recognize the need to have the, the full terrain open and as much terrain uh, able to be skied and ride on a, as possible. So while I don't have an exact date, uh, you know, I do feel pretty confident there that, uh, you know, the, the cold temperatures are going to be coming our way here. Uh, hopefully by end of week, it looks like we're going to get some. So uh, playing it day by day, our infrastructure is in place and we're just waiting for cold temperatures. But uh, if I had to put a day, unfortunately, I I'm not able to do that. No, no, and I wouldn't try to hold you to it because that's a fool's errand. Uh, Richard, much to the chagrin of many of the listeners, but music to the ears of the skiers and snowboarders. I'm with you. Let it snow. Let it snow. Let it snow. Good to have you on the show. Have a great season. We'll see you on the hill. You too. Call me anytime. Thank you. Thanks, Richard. Bye-bye. Richard Wells is the GM at Marble Mountain. Let's go to line number one. Mike, you're on the air. Yes, good morning, Patty. Good morning. Patty, I'm wondering, I've been trying to find a type of story... uh, I don't know what you want to call it. They could do it, but I'm looking for her to do a summation to the to the Supreme Court, and I want to do it in a formal fashion. And I'm having difficulty trying to find somebody who could do it to do the presentation, do a cover page, and type it up and whatever. So I wonder if there's anybody out there that uh, this is something I got to have done by January the 10th. I don't know. I mean, I know there's transcription services, but they, I don't think, would be in the business of formalizing a presentation for anyone. They simply would be taking audio files and transcribing them. So, boy, oh boy, a typist service willing to formalize a presentation? I really honestly don't know. Uh, if there's anybody out there, you know, they can give me a call, right? I'm anywhere from Clarenville to St. John's. 
Now, well, I, I guess I should hold, retract that a little bit. I don't know if some of the transcription services that are in the city, for instance, are able to formalize a presentation for you. I know of one that's called a JML, trans, uh, trans, Transcription Services. They might. I shouldn't be saying that people can't because they very well might be able to do it. So let me just give you one number. And these people, they might not be able to uh, formalize a presentation for the matter of a court uh, service. But let's see here. Inside their services. Da, 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 da. Document vetting. I've gone all over looking for uh, legal secretaries retired or liars retired, and I've gone down through a whole gamut of people looking for help to do this. Yeah, this is a big national operation, so I don't know if they provide this type of service, to be honest with you, but I'll give you their toll free number. Yes, please. Sure, 1 888. 288. Two eight eight six eight one seven. Six eight one seven. Yep. They're on two spots of the province. They're in town and in Cornerbrook. Yeah, well, somebody out there can do this and watch a few dollars for Christmas. No problem. Help me, and I can help you. If we get any bites, Mike, we'll give you a shout. Sounds good. Okay, buddy. All the best. Yeah, right. All right, bye-bye. Yeah, the formal document presentation, I don't really know if there's people out there willing or can take that on for someone like Mike, a uh, presentation of a land in Supreme Court. Anyway, good show today. Big thanks to everyone who supports the program, and we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.